Maybe slapping the bollocks tonight. You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, 120 minutes, or even possibly 180 minutes, we'll be talking about something other than Doctor Who, so that you don't have to. Dear Blue Boxers, I liked your last podcast very much. You talked about me a lot, which made me happy. I wish that I had a friend called Sucky Crack. She sounds like she sounds like my kind of friend. Mark said he once had an experience with someone and wasn't sure if she was a man or a woman, but I can give him some pointers on what to look out for to be able to tell. One of these is if she wears a dress. Another is if she shaves her army pits, unless she is a Spanish lady, in which case you can't tell unless she talks foreign, but that could also mean that she is from the north. I was pleased to hear that you might do a Star Trek podcast called Captain's Log. I did one of them this morning and had to call a plumber who was called Scotty. He said, if I gave it any more, then she would blow. So I gave it some more and she did, which made me very happy. The girls on Star Trek were nice. Diana Trey was very pretty, as was Major Cora and Drax. My favourite was 7 out of 9, though, who scored higher than that for me. <laughs> Uhurio was the lady who was in the first interrectal kiss with a man with a wig. <laughs> she was nice, but is very old now. I think... Simon may be right about the kind of magazines I like. I have a large collection, and if he wants to borrow some, he can, as long as he ignores some of the stains. I liked the talk about the different ears of Doctor Who. From the first one you talked about, the Olivia Newton-John and Harry H. Corbett era, I liked (laughs) Tegan. She had lovely legs and was a bit shouty, but that can be good in the right circumstances. (laughs) From the Graham Garden ear, there was Leela, who set the standard for what companions should wear. In fact, the standard for all nice girls, I think. There was also Romanov, who was very pretty and kept good time. I like a girl with rhythm. Also, there was Vivian Fay, who was much nicer when painted silver, and with a massive cleavage and Lady Vauxhall Astra, who wore kinky leather and a whip and had (laughs) balls of moss as pets. She made me go funny, and she got eaten by a giant willy, which was funny. From Gary Davis's ear, there was Rose, who was best in her first story with David Tenninch, where she wore a really tight top and was very flirty. That made me happy. Her mum was nice too. I like a nice milf. There was also Martha, who liked the Doctor, but he was still thinking about Rose in that top, so he ignored her. We also saw Kylie, who didn't wear her gold shorts or the dress which was wide open, so it could have been a bit rubbish, but she was a French maid, so that was all right. And we had Sally Sparrow, who was very pretty and had to keep her eyes open so that the angles didn't get her. A bit later, (laughs) 
<laughs> a bit later, there was Jenny who came out of the doctor's arm but was so pretty that my hand got tired again and also Lady Marmalade who went to the seaside and fought the stingrays. She used to be in Bellenders and then became the bionic woman and I liked her a lot. There was the master's wife who I suppose is now Lebanese seeing as the master is now Mary Poppins and also June Wittering who has been around since the 1870s but is a gagilf and I like her. Finally, you talked about a time when girls only lived in black and white, but it meant we got Zoe's bottom, and that made me very happy. <laughs> Your friend, Shark <coughs> Jizz. Uh, is, there a, is, is, is that a female a little... or male? Shark Jizz. Mm. He made a little typo there. He emailed me back afterwards asking me to ignore it, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> shark Jizz. Yeah. It's even worse than Shark Jizz. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I'm not sure it was a typo at all. Sharknado. I was going to say it could be Sharknado 3, couldn't it? <clears throat> we have other emails. We will save them. Tonight. <sighs> I need to catch my breath now. I spat tea out at one point. Did seven, you? seven out of t- nine, wasn't it? It spat was seven tea. out of nine. <laughs> it's such an obvious joke, but brilliant. <laughs> I can't believe I've never heard anyone use that before. Anyway. Okay, a few weeks ago, we talked about sci fi film sagas. And then a few weeks after that, we reconvened to talk about sci-fi shibboleths. This week, we have convened to talk about our personal choices. Did either of you listen to the one with Mark that I did last week? I haven't had a chance yet, no. No, it was all a bit of a rush, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, very last minute. Anyway, Mark's done his personal choices. So tonight, Uh it is incumbent upon us to do our personal choices. Can we go over his choices very quickly or not? We can go over his choices, if I could remember what they were, but it's all been such a blur. Okay, one of them was Skeletons. Love it. Oh, great film. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, really? Because I hadn't seen it. I've never even heard of it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's um, low budget, two guys wandering about. Yeah, one of them's local to here. One of them's from X-Wick. Yeah. Yes, and... uh, yeah, I thought the whole film, you've, you've obviously talked about it at length, so I won't go over it. But okay, in that case, we'll move on to Mark's done. second choice. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Okay, another one, of Mark's, another, course, another one of Mark's choices was Gattaca. Oh, I really like Gattaca. I've got a soft spot for that film. I wouldn't have it up there as one of my top. I've got a soft spot for that film. I wouldn't have it up there. <laughs> <laughs> Too much sharp jizz in this programme. Um, Gattaca, have you seen Gattaca? I've Simon? not, no. I know the... Um, Premise. The premise, yeah. Good word. Yeah. We'll be talking a lot about premises tonight. And we're recording at Simon's house, speaking of premises. Mm. <laughs> and Mark's third choice was The Unmentionable. Which I shall come to when we get to an email from Matt Barber. Oh, okay. Silence. <laughs> no, it was a Christopher Nolan film. The one with the, uh, what's it called? The one with the uh, dreamy weemy shenanigans. Dreamy weemy shenanigans. Oh, what's it called? I've forgotten what it's called. Dark Knight Rises? No, Inception. (laughs) Inception. 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 Still not seen it. Still not seen it. Another great idea, but not necessarily a great film, I don't think. It's a good film. Have you seen it? Yeah. You don't sound convinced. No, I have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. It's a bit like The Matrix, but using dreams and... Conscious and subconscious, and it's espionage thrown in, and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, I don't know whether it's a Philip K. Dick story, but it, it basically is very, very Philip, similar. Yeah, um, it's it's good. Maybe I should watch it again. Actually, give you a better review. 
<laughs> you don't need to. Mark reviewed it last week. Okay, tonight we've each chosen <coughs> we've each chosen three films, which are not well. The idea was that we'd each choose three personal choices, films that people listening to this podcast might very well like, but may not necessarily have seen. Oh, and chances are they will have seen mm. quite a few off this list, if not all of them. But I have drawn lots to see which of the three of us goes first, and I've also drawn lots of the three films that they're nominated. And completely randomly, the first one that came up, Lee, was one of your choices, and it is The Thing. Ooh. For anybody <clears throat> who doesn't know, yeah, just in a nutshell, the premise. Um... Researchers in a station in Antarctica come across uh, a dog. Um, No, way too much information. How much do you want? Do you want a complete summary? It's about an Antarctic base. It's about an Antarctic base. Uh, It's an alien invasion. It's a base under siege story. Being Doctor Who fans, we know what that means. Um, But it's nice because it's an attack from within. It's uh, it's a story about paranoia. It's a story about... um, uh, being all kind of cooped up in that ice and the, the frozen wastelands and what to do, and it's about sacrifice and it's about um, whether or not it's trust, trust and paranoia. Basically, it's a very very clever little film actually. Basically, it's a film about an Antarctic base, and an alien turns up who can take on the form of the people who work there. Yeah, and so nobody knows who the alien is. That's right. So that's where the paranoia comes in. Yeah, so where yeah, but but where does it come from? It comes from a book by Mr. Campbell, who I never remember his first name. Joseph? John No John W. Campbell. John W. Uh written in thirty eight, nineteen thirty eight. So it's a in astounding stories or amazing stories, one of those magazines. Um and it's I don't know if you've read it at all, but it's a, it's an absolutely cracking little read. It's quite slow. Because it was written a long time ago, there's mm. no major action sequences, but uh, it's it's well ahead of its time for science fiction. It's actually a really good novella. Um, I think it was possibly given awards and things at the time. I'm not sure, but anyway, so good that it spawned obviously Thing from Another World, which is the black and white film in the 50s, I believe. 1951. 1951. Uh, Horror Express, which is the train version of it with Peter Cushion, I think was in that one. Uh, obviously, yeah, the thing, and also the new prequel for well, new about three years ago. Oh, the thing yeah, as well. yeah, which is also called the thing. Which is also called the thing, which Brilliant. is silly. Should it be called something else? But actually, it isn't a bad film. I really enjoyed it. Oh, okay, um, and I'll tell you why in a sec. But the thing is, is it's one of oh, and Seeds of, uh, Seeds of Doom, of course, Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. The first two episodes of that are basically just stolen from. The film, the thing. So, if you haven't seen this and you like snowy Antarctic wastes, wasteland, and uh, gore, because there's a lot of gore in it as well, um, and paranoia, and uh, people with flamethrowers, and Kurt Russell, then you know, <coughs> you're into a winner. How can you not like this film? Right, the I don't f- like films where the dogs get you hurt. Uh, it doesn't get hurt. It does get hurt. <laughs> it gets very badly hurt. Badly hurt. Yeah. But it turns into a monster, so it's a bit like you know Doctor Who, where things turn into monsters. Did you not like Alien Three? Um, You're not a body horror man, are you? Like body shock. Body horror. shock. I don't know, really. Don't like transformation. I like it with comedy, right? Because then I can laugh through the gore. But no, other than that, I find it really quite disturbing. 
Yeah, well, it was lauded for its effects at the time. They did a lot of um, brilliant kind of animatronics and prosthetics. Um, the prequel um, recognised that and tried to bring a lot of prosthetics and animatronics back in with CGI cleaning stuff up, and I think it did a really good job. There's something you've really not mentioned yet that you really, really ought to. Sure, no. It's a John Carpenter film. I was getting there. <laughs> yeah, that should really have been your starting <laughs> point, shouldn't it? John Carpenter, uh, he's a hit and miss director for me. There's loads of stuff that he's done before that just doesn't cut the mustard. The Mars. Well, since ones. then. Yeah, since there's, then. There's the vampire film that's. He started off great. His LA. first few films were all great. Yeah. And then he did the thing, and ever since then, he's been rubbish. And why is that? I've no idea. Because. From the thing onwards, he decided that he was important enough to have his name in the title of the movie. Mm. So the thing is actually called John Carpenter's The Thing. thing, Anybody who does that is automatically (laughs) playing with fire. But they they? had Stephen, you know, same with Stephen King, isn't it? Stephen King's It. Yeah, but the film's not called Stephen King's It. And the book's not called Stephen King's It. Is the film called John Carpenter's The The Thing? thing. Yeah. Mm. I just thought it was called The Thing. No, it's called John Carpenter's The Thing. Actually, I may I may be wrong about that. It may be after that film that they actually um, became part of the title. I don't know when The Fog came out. Was that before The Thing? Or after yeah, yeah. The, before, before. yeah, again, that's another good one. And um, Prince of Darkness, I know, is one of those ones that people don't necessarily like, but it's a slow-burning, apocalyptic film, very similar to the When idea. you say Prince of Darkness, do you mean John Carpenter's John Prince Carpenter's of Darkness? <laughs> he did the music for that film. I don't know whether he... Did he do the music for the thing as well? Well, I no. Think. I was about to bring that up. John Carpenter started with things like Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween. Oh, yeah. Crackers. For which he did all the music himself. Mm. But when he came to do The Thing, they got Ennio Morricone to do a John Carpenter-esque score for they it. did. We played that on the show the other day. Yeah. It's and it's fantastic. amazing. Yeah. Because John Carpenter's music anyway... If you That's the thing from Halloween and the theme from Assault on Precinct 13. It's very simple stuff. But it's absolutely amazing because he, he it just is. gets it. He's a he's a simple writer though. When you listen to all of his stuff, there are <coughs> two notes going boom, 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 all boom, ba ba, boom, ba ba, all dee 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 like tubular bells, like Mike Oldfield, just taking that exorcist thing. So he's I don't think he's an amazingly accomplished composer, but what he does, he layers it really well. They live is one of his, is one of them. John Carpenter's They Live. Yeah. That's a classic tune. Must go see that. Um, no, I don't know. I think the thing is just one of my all-time favourite films. It's, it affected me a lot when I first saw it on pirate video in the eighties, um, and I was only about thirteen or fourteen when it came out. Do you know what I can recommend to you? Go on. A book called The Possessors by John Christopher. John Christopher. Right. Okay. John Christopher, yeah. who wrote the White Mountains, the Tripods trilogy. Mm-hmm. And so he, that was his attempt. He had been a sci-fi writer for adults. And I don't think especially successful, reasonably successful. And The White Mountains was his attempt to do his sci-fi shtick for kids. And of course that was very successful. Because basically it was Day of the Triffids for children, right? Mm-hmm. And kids love Day of the Triffids anyway, so why That's wouldn't a, they? Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't they? Oh, Day of the Triffids meets War of the Worlds, I should say. I shouldn't. Mm. But The Possessors <laughs> is... Basically, Agatha Christie meets the thing from another world. That sounds brilliant. It's like (laughs) ten people in an isolated house and an alien turns up and starts taking them one by one. And the alien disguises itself as the people. I suppose it hasn't been done before. Maybe it has. Well, Menzies pretty much did it, didn't he? 
But basically, it's the same thing. Some uh, isolated ski chalet or something. But it's a great book. Oh, it's one of those. Yeah, it's one time. of those books where, as I was reading it, I was thinking, "Yeah, I recognise this. Yeah, I recognise that." But at the same time, I was thinking, "I'd bloody love it." Exactly. Yeah. So with with the thing, uh, the new version of it, I was very, you know, how can you remake a classic? Right. Well, you can't. What they did is a prequel, and I thought, well, hang on a minute. How can you do a prequel? No, no, no. no but you, but the thing, John Carpenter's the thing, is <laughs> yeah. a remake of the. Oh, it's a remake. It's a remake. But this was a direct link to the film, the thing. John Carpenter's the thing. So this yeah, new yeah. film is a direct link to it. But in so much as that the prequel itself is set on the Norwegian base that they discover. Yeah, I know. With yeah, all yeah, of yeah. the characters being Norwegian, and even the axe in the door and the frozen guy sitting there with the headphones on all of that's in the prequel and they really worked hard at trying to get the story right it's almost a little bit pointless doing that because you take all of the, the mystery element out of the, out of the John Carpenter's thing anyway but actually it was a really good stab at it I thought very good stab but the thing John Carpenter's the thing that's a great film right it's a it's in my top ten you've seen it have you Simon oh, I've seen bits of it when I could last it Oh, have you seen Escape from New York? No, no. Oh, that was his last film before it. Mm. Actually, I didn't. I've not think... seen a lot of John Carpenter. Obviously, I've seen Dark Star. I've seen the early ones up as far as the thing, but God awful vampires. Another yet another vampire mm. film that put me off vampires. <laughs> he just lost it awful. big time, really. Mm. He did some interesting stuff afterwards. Mm. Some the one with John Lithgow. What was that called? It was like a horror film, but about madness, about dual personality. It was good. Did you do The Fog as well? Yeah, Yeah, that was prior to... that was. I think The Fog was 79 or 80. Mm. Escape from New York was 81 and The Thing was 82. The thing I did um, discover when I was was doing a tiny bit of research, and it's not a lot, but a little bit, um, that Tobe Hooper, who did um, Chainsaw Massacre, was up for directing it, I believe, or writing it. One of the two, I can't remember now. That's good, isn't it? Good research. But anyway... Um, they got Bill Lancaster in to write it, who was Burt Lancaster's son. Well, the thing? Yeah, the script. Oh, John Carpenter John didn't Carpenter do it himself? No. Oh, well, that probably explains it. why it's so good. Yeah. <clears throat> he directed it all. Are you saying you should stick to the music? Um, pretty much. <laughs> no, he <laughs> should... Fair comment. <laughs> he, should, he should just have given up after about 1982 and forgotten about it altogether. Oh, I don't know. They live and Prince of Darkness. Fine. He can give up after that. Okay. And the John Lithgow one. And the John Lithgow one, which we still can't remember the name of. Oh, <laughs> I know exactly okay. what you mean. Yeah, it was a good film. That's I was about to say something. Oh, the thing, we've got to put it into context. It was three years after Alien. Uh-huh, yeah. So, I and mean... the same year, or just after the same year as E.T., wasn't it? Same year as E.T. So yeah, complete polar opposite. Oh, yeah, Alien. but that's less important because... Uh, E.T. and The Thing came come out in the same year. They're obviously both in development for a long time beforehand, so that's just coincidence. Okay, right. The point being, it was three years after Alien, and that's about <clears throat> how long it takes for a film to gestate and come to production. Yeah. It was, very obviously, John Carpenter's answer to Alien. And it is, essentially, it's just Alien set on an Antarctic base instead of a spaceship. Yes. Even down to, in The Thing, the spaceship... The spaceship in the thing, the alien takes on the form of the people that it's attacking. Well, obviously, that doesn't happen in Alien, but Alien starts with that whole first hour or so 
where it infects John Hurt and comes out of John Hurt. Mm. So even that idea is paralleled in the thing. <clears throat> yeah, the infection. But all that was in the original novella anyway, so I think what he was tapping into was just perfect source material. Well, I say that, I mean, he obviously read the book, but they were tapping more into the 1950s film uh, and updating that, I think. Just a little side conversation we're going to have here, is that? which is something that comes up <laughs> all the time, Yeah, is that people are always... People are always saying remakes have got no value. And if they hear that something's about to be remade, they'll say, what's the point? The original's good. Why would you want to mess about with that? Me, my point of view on that is... I think we've talked about this before, actually. Mm. My point Mm. of view is, no, there is not an inherent lack of value in a remake because the remake is essentially an adaptation of something. Mm. Now, whether that adaptation be from a different media or from the same medium, that's largely irrelevant. If there's a film that comes out in 1951 <clears throat> that has that's in black and white, that's probably been made in 4x3, that has good-for-the-day special effects, but not special effects that would particularly live up to modern standards Mm. and the same goes for the music and the performances because if it's pre-method then the chances are the performances are probably going to be very good but they're not going to be very natural there's no reason not to remake something to adapt Mm. something now whether the remake actually turns out to be any good that's a different case in point but the the actual fact that you've made a remake in and of itself doesn't mean to say the remake's not going to be any good lots of remakes or readaptations seeing as this is rather than being a remake i suppose you could say it's a second adaptation sometimes they're very good the wizard of oz the one that we all know and love the one that was on every christmas Mm. when we were kids on telly and probably still is actually that is a fantastic film but that was the second version of the wizard of oz Mm. You know, hmm. there have been lots of remakes and lots of sequels <clears throat> that have matched up there to have, what went and there have before. There have been kind of very recent remakes of, of late, um, when America, Hollywood rather, has looked around the globe and seen success in other countries and they take it and do their own version. So Let the Right One In is a, <clears throat> an obvious example. Internal um, Affairs. Uh, yeah, and but they've done a really good good version of it. I, I've seen both films of that of that. It's, a, it's the best vampire film. Internal ever, Affairs. Seriously. Infernal Affairs. Uh, Let the Right One In. And then... Let Me In, I think it's called, in the American market. And also The Ring, uh, the Japanese The Ring and the American mm-hmm. The Ring. If you've never seen The Ring before, Japanese version, and you watch the American version, it's a, it's a top film. It's really good. It's got great source material because the original was fantastic. They never quite top it. They can never be exactly, you know, as good. Well, if you're adapting it but for a different bad. market, you have to change things. Yeah, and and if you're adapting a film that was made in the 1950s for a 1980s market, you have to change things yeah. to make the sensibilities work for a 1980s audience. And if you're doing foreign language, people say, "Oh, foreign language films. Why can't people just go out and watch the original version?" You know, 99% of people who go to movies are not going to want to sit there and watch subtitles. It, you might think it's a sad fact. But it's true. And I have to say, from my own perspective, I've seen a lot of foreign language films. I think you lose something in translation because, Mm. A, your eyes are almost always at the bottom of the screen reading what's being said. And, B, if the characters in the film are speaking in a different language, you lose the nuance. Mm. And also, you don't know. If you're watching a film in English, you know 
if the director's taken his eye off the ball and everyone's got their line readings wrong. You know if the emphases are all in the wrong places. Mm. You know if the actors patently don't know what they're talking about when they're reading the lines that were in the script. If that's in a foreign language and you're reading at the bottom of the screen, you can't tell that. For all we know, something like Jean de Florette it's got some dreadful performances in, but we'll never know because it's in French. <laughs> Do you know good, what I'm saying? Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good so, point. I mean, presumably it hasn't because it was a massive success in France as well. But you know what I'm saying? The point stands. It's interesting you say that. Is, is there a reason why there's a lack of dubbed films now? Is it just in case people don't like dubbed films? Because obviously I watch a lot of um, uh, Studio Ghibli movies. And obviously the dubbing on those is fantastic. I think there's yeah. a snobbery about it these days, mm. isn't there? Mm. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> with something like the Studio Ghibli films, it doesn't matter because it's animation. No, no. So you can you can really, you know, they just open their mouth up a particular way, like wow, wow, wow. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. But, with, but I'm just saying that yeah. it, it works. And you are able to enjoy the film as, as much as any... Yeah, American even though the Disney timing film. of the readings are always very odd in Japanese films. Mm. Because, um, you know, obviously the language is completely, completely different. different. The way yeah. it's delivered is different. Oh, yeah. So when you yeah. put English over the top, you have to talk a little bit like this. It's, a, it's kind of a different way of delivering Yeah, but sometimes words. that it enhances feels, the entertainment. It does. Oh, no, it, and it absolutely does <laughs> it with Studio does. Ghibli, the way that the translations <laughs> yeah. don't say, quite Same thing places. with Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns. Mm. Yeah. They're all dubbed and often sort of what you would say is fairly badly, but actually that just you know, enhances the entertainment mm, factor. Mm, yeah, mm. I think there's a snobbery about it. And I also think that if you're doing something fairly highbrow, you couldn't get away with dubbed dialogue. Because the thing about dubbed dialogue is it does kind of take you out of it just a little bit. Mm. And that's okay in something that's kind of pulpy. Mm. Because something that's pretty pulpy, you have to kind of watch in a slightly postmodern sense anyway. It's kind of, this is trash, and it knows it is, but it's there to be entertaining, and I'm being entertained by it. But something that's a bit more highbrow, if that's dubbed, and there's something in there that's kind of, Mm. you know, pulling you out in that sort of direction, you're not going to give it the kind of buy that you would give to something like, for a few dollars more. Mm. Before we move on to whatever the next film is, I'm just saying... uh, Did it sound like we were about to move on? Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We've almost been an hour on mine. We could be here till two o'clock in the morning. Um, no, uh, uh, by the same token, it'd be interesting to know what people from other countries make of the dubbed Doctor Who, because obviously that's extremely uh, British orientated sci-fi. You know, with a lot of um, uh, references to you know British culture, British culture in London, stuff like that. So it'd be interesting nice to see how people... needed. Nice cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. you know. Would it be that, or would it be a cup of green tea? Or <laughs> you know, I don't no, know. It could be. You know. The thing about Doctor Who is it's not highbrow, so I think you can get away with what. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you can get away with having fun with it. The best ones, the um, English translation of what was the Gerard Depardieu film? The, the, um, the visitors. No, no, no. no, no the uh, what do you mean the remake of Roxette? Yeah. No. What's it called? The Serrano uh, de Bergerac. Serrano de Bergerac. Oh. That was Anthony Burgess who wrote the English translation for that, wasn't it? Did he? He wasn't dubbed, but it was subtitles. But Anthony Burgess wrote it and he threw in a load of his own jokes so that a lot of the dialogue in that film is not the dialogue that's in the French script, but that is 
the dialogue that Anthony Burgess has changed himself. I'd love to see it here. Oh, see Serrano de Bergerac done as Clockwork Orange with all that language. It'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. Okay, Simon, let's move on then, since Lee thinks we've been going too long on the first film. And it is 25 minutes or so. <laughs> we've got nine of these to get through. Okay, Simon, your first choice. Is right there. Oh, it's that one there. I've got the cover out so I could get some of the facts. Yes, Tron. Yeah. Did you, Lee, did you see this when it was out in the 80s? I did see it when it was out in the 80s, yeah. But I didn't see it at the cinema. I saw it uh, when it came onto TV. Have you seen it since? Yes. The only time I've ever seen it was other pictures in the 80s. I've not seen it since. So, Simon, for people who don't know, in a nutshell... Try doing this in a single sentence. The premise of Tron is? A man gets sucked into a computer. Well, a, compu- <laughs> a video game. Into a video game, yeah. He yeah. actually actually owns a, a video game arcade, which, again, was that was the era of arcade machines and, and arcades. You had to go and spend money to play the really good games. The thing about Tron is... The thing about Tron that I took from it was if they'd waited another five years, mm. two things if they'd waited another five years. Mm. One, they could have properly done it justice. Yeah. Because I think the the thing that put me off about Tron was that great idea, but they didn't quite have the technology to do it justice. And yet they'd been trying for quite a few years to make it, I think. Mm. But in the end, the, the other thing is if they'd have waited a few years... Not only would they have been able to do it justice, but they'd have missed the boat. Yeah. Because yeah. Tron was very much of its time, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Was it 82 it came out? Yeah. I think it was the same year as Blade Runner and E.T. Blade. and The Thing from Another World. The, mm. the remake of The Thing, rather. John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. And <laughs> it's Disney. It is, yeah. Um, another reason I like it was Disney being brave. They They just started... It was almost like a little tester to see whether they could branch into more adult movies well, the funny I thing think is that's kind of i don't know was it technically a flop yeah i think it was i think it was it didn't do what they hoped it was but i think the fact is as always i'll go for the underdog and, and the fact that it was so brave both in the, well, it wasn't the, really an underdog it was disney uh, <laughs> yeah but it was a brave idea by disney it was disney trying to do something i mean at a time when disney were making some pretty awful animations if i remember rightly yeah, but Disney had also, for the previous few years, they had been trying things out in the 1970s. Black Hole. Yeah, but, but also <laughs> yeah. things like One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing was Disney in the 1970s. <laughs> Do, yeah, but in the 1970s, Disney had a huge amount of success in the 40s and 50s with their animations, right? And in the 60s, that well had begun to run dry. Mm. And although some of the Disney films from the 60s are pretty good and although they did well because they've still got the, that Disney cachet mm. the films they made in the 60s weren't the classics they weren't you know Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and that kind of thing instead you're talking the Aristocats right the Aristocats, that was the 60s wasn't it very early 60s that's kind of the end of the 50s cycle really I okay. think it was 1960 mm. Mm. but point, point being something like the Aristocats great film but it's not Sleeping Beauty it's not the Jungle Book, right? No. So Disney, by the time you get to the 1970s, are sort of starting to cast mm. further afield a bit. 
one of our dinosaurs is missing is essentially a brick comedy of the Tis, doctor yeah. in love or sorry yeah. carry on and the herbie movies of, and yeah, yeah it's yeah. one of those lots of sort of classic british character Ooh. actors in a Ooh. fairly silly run around comedy kind of a sort of anglicized tea drinking update of the screwball comedies of the 40s Disney films of that time had the there was something about the sound of Disney movies, the way the voices sounded. It always sounded really boxy and almost distorted. Yeah, and no one else's films sound like it. But you instantly know when you listen to a Disney film Mm. because of the soundtrack. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, Yeah. but I think I well, yeah, I'm not without going into animation too much. You had stuff like I love Robin Hood, and 101 Dalmatians is one of the greatest Disney films ever. Great yeah, stuff. but but it's not. It doesn't have that classic. No, but those times are gone. Yeah, exactly. Those mm. times have gone, and the sixties ones. Some great films, like mm. I say, but they're just slightly out of the classic. Yeah, mode. yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, but not as bad as things like Oliver and Company and um, Oh God, Little yeah. Mermaid is rescuers. Awful film. But bringing it back to Tron, I'm gonna. People are shouting. It's at got them. a great soundtrack. So Disney oh, of don't. <laughs> I love the lobster. So Disney have tried their hand at trying different <laughs> genres, right? And doing live action and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And then Star Wars is a massive success. Mm-hmm. And Disney say, right, let's try and have some of that. Yeah. And do the black hole. Mm, they do now. But the point being, when Disney made Cinderella, Disney had a massive, massive, massive success with something that they did. Mm. Right? With something that was... Disney in every bone in its body. When they do the black hole, they're trying to have a massive success with somebody else's massive success, but that's already been a massive success. The black hole is never going to do that. And so somebody clever at Disney or somebody with a bit of foresight says, right, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to repeat other people's success by trying to do our versions of other people's films, mm. and looks instead at what's going on in the world and says, right, let's do a movie based on something that's taking place in society rather than something that's taking place in other people's movies. And Tron comes out of that. And you're right, they, what they do is, what's popular? Arcade games are popular we've got the technology now to try and make a movie that replicates what's going on in arcade games because, essentially, arcade games are using the same kind of technology as movies. Mm. In other words, it's a screen with pictures on it. So all you have to do is take what's going on in the arcade games and sort of transplant the two into... You know, into one entity. Mm, mm. I, th- I think it's successful, actually. Um, it does fail in some parts, but it was, it was spearheading new technology. I think it was the first CGI, or considered computer graphic. Um, first full-length CGI film. Yeah, that's I mean, right. they used parts in Star Wars, for God's sake, didn't they? The, um, yeah. the laser sight, the, the sighting mechanism at the end of the Star that's Wars. Right, yeah, so, um, uh, you know, they're, they're glow-in-the-dark kind of clothy suits and the fact that it was filmed quite dark in order to get that um, and it was all hand painted actually hand animated all the stuff on their suits hand animated that's right so you have a particular camera that when it swings past Mm. that you know it lights it up and I think Doctor Who used it in Silver Nemesis Uh, they used this they used it a lot but um, yeah they used it all the time in fact but 
you know, something like The Last Starfighter that came out a little bit after that was influenced by Tron. I watched that recently, and I, I think Tron holds up. I mean, it's of its time. Yes, it's a bit clunky in some of the areas of, of design, but they were trying to do something new. But the last Starfighter, John Gerard Mobius design. I think, I think actually, clunky. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I meant as in the cloth. You know, you can yeah, see no, the fact I, they're wearing yeah. a grey t-shirt. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Sark's helmet and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, Mr. It Chief. is one of the problems with it is it is too dark. It is because. Yeah, it's like it's the same thing as people complain about Warriors of the Deep, saying the sea base is too well lit. But who would work in an environment that wasn't well lit? <laughs> and Tron is the same thing. It's like it's so dark mm, that you you've got to imagine Tron. You've got to imagine somebody on the outside of the arcade game wanting to play that game, right? Mm -hmm. But the action in Tron is so dark that somebody who was playing it from the outside would probably actually be but struggling. It kind of emulates thing, uh, games like Battlezone, doesn't it? Where it was literally oh, yeah. you know, like those um, isometric very games. Very grid, mm. gritty-based games. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's very yeah. grid-based, isn't it, uh, Tron? Fun. Did, did you ever play the Tron arcade game? I did. I did. I played it again and that? again. And oh, do you remember how beautiful the joystick was? But it was... Yeah. As you say, yeah. it was all tying in. The killer laser frisbee it was, game. It was the joystick on the game that was yeah. in the film. It's kind of like yeah. a light clear blue plastic. And joystick. again, that was another one of those things. Star Wars obviously had done marketing from their films, you know, mm. direct marketing, the little figures of the people that you see in the film. Oh, that's great. With Tron, they had the, an arcade game because it was about an arcade game, and they actually had bits from the film. On the actual arcade game itself, mm. and for people like you and I at that age, it was the most exciting thing ever because you were literally playing the film. But and also, you hoped to be sucked into that screen yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and people still make stories now. I mean, you know, where people will get sucked into video games and things. Yeah, and actually, Tron came out just shortly after the. Oh, I can't remember the name of the director now. God. David Cronenberg film, Video Drone. Yeah. yeah. Oh, in fact, no, it was the year before. I think Video Drone was 83. It's a popular idea. Mm. And in fact, you mentioned The Ring not very long ago. And well, for anybody who's not seen it, I won't go any further. Yeah. But that has a little bit yeah. of that idea in it, it as has. well. It's got the curse of the videotape, which is quite a clever idea. Mm. Um, and obviously, more than that, which we won't go into now. But it's a very potent idea. Because the thing about video games. More than movies or TV, and in the and this we're talking Tron is eighty two, which is more than thirty years ago. So we're talking something that's got quite a bit of foresight because the planet we live in now, all these things are all starting to tie together in all sorts of different ways that Tron was kind of foreshadowing. Oh, it was the virtual reality side of things. I mean, I when I watched the film and when I thought about it, and every time I watched it. Every, Go on, go on. But the difference between... <laughs> but the difference it's between... It's bloody film. But the difference between a movie and a video game is, in a movie, you're just... You're watching. You're, uh, you know, entirely yeah. at the whim of what you're watching. You're passive. A yeah. video, passive, that's the word I was looking for. A video game, you're actually taking part. Mm. You're involved. Mm. And so Tron... And that's possibly why it didn't quite work. Because it was trying to give you the feeling that you're involved, whereas, of course, because it's a film, you're not involved. Mm. So, uh, it might, for me, it's a bit like a folly. It might be beautiful yeah. and wonderful. Be I love it. 
but it doesn't quite work. No. Yeah. Because no. it doesn't quite achieve what it really needed to achieve in order to work. The thing is, it, it yeah, as you say, the, I, the, I, my perception of the way it, why it didn't work is because people didn't. It's one of these things that falls between... Falls between houses, is that the, is that the phrase? Falls between where, two stools. Falls between two stools, yes. <laughs> um, where people think video games, that's fun. It's got to be funny. This is Disney. It's a, it's a funny yeah. Disney film about video games. So they go to the cinema to, expecting to see, yeah. uh, what's that recent CGI movie? Amazing. I can never remember. Boy 6 or whatever it's called. Hero No, 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 no before that. What's it called? <clears throat> about the guy who smashed up buildings? Oh, that, that's awful. Oh. Wreck-It Ralph. That's a great film. Whatever. That is a great film. But people expected <laughs> Wreck-It Ralph. But instead, they got something which is quite metaphysical. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that film. It's, it's Under dark. the surface. <laughs> it is. And actually, the things I thought about that film that were going on were completely borne out when I saw the, the sequel, Tron Legacy. Yeah. Which is absolutely hitting the nail on the head about what the first one was kind of trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Which is this idea that it was it wasn't just about this guy taking part in the video game. It was that inside this computer is another is literally another world. Mm. And if you could transfer people into that, is it is it the possibility to create your own world? So it was about world building. It's about virtual reality yeah. and Minecraft. Minecraft. Yeah, it's the Matrix before the Matrix as well. In a way, it is. But, I mean, it is. There's a uh, lot Tron going Legacy on. Legacy is quite interesting one to bring up, really, because you, it's like the thing. You know, we were talking about the thing. John Carpenter's the thing, and it's, <laughs> and it's prequel. That they're quite similar, and they have to be quite similar. The prequel had to almost be, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle fitting together with it. Mm. Tron Legacy is the same. It's part two essentially, mm. um, and to try and. You know, what do you do? Do you update it to the point where you don't recognise the first film? Or do you emulate the first film and just beef it up a little bit with the effects? Which is what they did. They didn't shy away from the same look as the first film. No. But they just made it look better. Like you say, mm. they, they achieved what they it, intended it, it to do. It evolved. It evolved. Yeah. But, you know, after The Matrix, we've had The Matrix now. We've had all these amazing films full of effects about, you know, Inception, going into different minds and all this kind of stuff. How could Tron Legacy possibly top it all but I think it did I think it did See, my, my only thing I don't like about the Tron Legacy is the, is the main actor which one the the son the young guy oh, son of Flynn son of Flynn yeah it's kind of and can I just say the wishy music washy. the music in the I know film. Dove Park yeah I know Dove well the music Park. in the original is great and it kind oh, of fantastic but it came of its time and it was almost a little bit dated at the time Wendy Carlos yeah. wasn't it yeah it was um, oh Wendy Carlos yeah also known as Walter. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about the Wachowski brothers tonight. <laughs> but it I got is, pulled it up on lovely. that last and time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd completely forgotten. But uh, Tron's just one of those things that stuck with me, and I still think it's It's one of those amazing. movies from that period that... The big movies from that period, the Star Wars, your Close Encounters, your Alien, yeah, they're all massively influential, but actually, it's the movies that didn't do so well, your Trons, your Blade Runners, mm. that actually changed the way that movie makers would go about making movies. Star Wars didn't change the way people would go about making movies. It influenced what they'd make movies about. Mm. Mm. But Tron actually influenced the way movies would be made. I don't know, Star Wars did influence ways certain things were made. <clears throat> oh no, it introduced things yeah. like uh, motion cameras for yeah. special yeah, effects. Computer yeah. control cameras. And... But it didn't it didn't but all that did was influence something that already existed. 
whereas Tron and Blade Runner kind of introduced new concepts into yeah. I'm talking more about just I'm talking more about just people pointing cameras. Yeah. I'm talking about the whole sort of the whole sort of big sort of uh, the concept. concepts of yeah. movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you know yeah. another film which would have possibly usurped Tron is The Dark Crystal, same year. Yeah. I adore I, that I film. And I always kind of have those two films together in my head. Yeah. But Tron, yeah, I think Tron pips it because it is so original. Should we get Dark Crystal? I love that one. It came out. Mine. Oh, the one that came out of the hat for me to go first. You actually watched this after I told you. I did. Because you'd never seen it. Have you ever seen Idiocracy? No. Oh, I haven't you will love seen it. it. You will love it. <laughs> it is absolutely hilarious. It's gonna, another flop, actually. Are you going to be able to yeah. talk, talk about this without spoiling it? Yeah, because yeah. I'll just give you a yeah. single sentence premise. <laughs> this guy who's a complete doofus gets um Good. there he is. The the American army want to do an experiment with tie with um cryogenic freezing. So right. but because the technology isn't advanced enough that they're um, confident about doing it, they just pick the biggest doofus they can <laughs> and cryogenically freeze him and then the experiment gets binned and he gets left frozen in this cryogenic chamber only to wake up find 500 years later to find that because what should we say the lower order of society are basically just having child after child after child whereas the shall we say more intelligent ends of society are giving up having children in order to have careers 500 years down the line, there is only the lower orders of society left. <laughs> and this complete doofus wakes up 500 years in the future to find he is the most intelligent man on the planet. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's Mike Judge, isn't it? King of the Hill. It's, yeah, Mike, King of the Hill, Office Space, Beavis and Butthead Judge. And it is absolutely hilarious from start to finish. But also... And this is this is why it was a flop in America because the Americans do not like people holding mirrors up to them and saying this is what you could become if you're not careful. So uh, the Americans absolutely. When I say the Americans, I mean in general. Obviously, not all the Americans, but in general, America don't watch Doctor Who. Yeah, Yeah. America hated it, and then it was a fairly big hit over in Britain, relatively speaking. But it is just... Well, I mean, you watched it, Simon. Yeah, yeah, it was a complete surprise to me. And it was a lovely... Just a lovely surprise, really. Of it. So, uh, how, when was this made? Maybe ten years ago. A little less than ten years ago. Five, between five and ten years ago. I couldn't give you a specific date. What's nice about it is that... Like... Unlike some films, which will take a high concept and which will concentrate entirely on the concept. This does that thing that... It takes a concept and gives it heart. This guy might be a complete doofus, and um, it's not spoiling much to say he's not the only one who wakes up. (laughs) Somebody else gets involved in the experiment and wakes up as well. And the relationship they have, and the entire movie is just filled with doofus dialogue. (laughs) Nobody... Nobody says anything that isn't doofus-worthy. But actually, these two people who wake up 500 years into the future actually have a really sweet relationship in spite of just being utter doofuses. It's got 
It's got a real big heart. It sounds really good. It's got sounds a real big heart at the centre of it. Mm. And yet it is, from start to finish, absolutely side-splittingly hilarious. Mm. <clears throat> so anybody who's not seen it... Oh, but it's got an awful lot of bad language in it. So if you don't like bad language in films, you're probably best off avoiding this one. <laughs> so who's the director this one? Mike Judge, the guy who yeah. got his start with Beavis and Butthead. And did did Office Space, which is another film which is absolutely hilarious and yet has bags of heart at the centre of it. Yeah. I never liked Beavis and Butted, though, I've got to say. No, but I think, well, it's one of those instances where if you're going to do something that's completely out of left field, you've kind of got to... Going back to what I was saying about when you make indie films, where you've got to kind of overdo everything in order to make your point, in order to get yourself noticed... Somebody like Mike Judge probably would rather do things like Idiocracy and Office Space and what have you. But in order to get himself onto that stage in the first place, you do something like Beavis and Butthead, right? And you pour a lot of creative energy into it. And I'm not saying you don't either A, enjoy it, or B, don't think it has any value. Mm -hmm. But you have to kind of overemphasize certain things in order to get yourself noticed. So mm -hmm. Beavis and Butthead kind of scratches the surface of what Mike Judge is all about. And then the movies he made afterwards are probably like the real him. Mm. And he's done other movies as well. The one he made after Idiocracy, I can't remember what it's called. It's not as good. Because <clears throat> I think you get to a certain point where you hit your pinnacle and then you kind of maybe struggle with the next two or three films. Mm. Because once you've reached a certain pinnacle, you're kind of, okay, that's had everything I've got. Now I... Once you've put everything you've got into something, then you've got to try and find something else to put in the next film, otherwise you're just repeating yourself, aren't you? Yeah, mm. John Carpenter's a thing. Yeah. The, the thing I had trouble getting over with the Beavis and Butthead was the link with MTV. I mean, MTV was the big baddie, as far as I was concerned, with music and things like that. Yeah. But when you, you, start, you, you start seeing that they're, they're quite tragic characters, um, and when you realise that, yeah, actually, they're in on the joke. They're on the joke. They're not supposed to be... I had I, I had people who worked with me who did impressions all the time and yeah. they weren't even aware that they were kind of those characters. They were <laughs> yeah, emulating yeah. them thinking, Yeah, yeah. I'm as funny as they are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are as funny as them, but you don't really know why yeah, you're you as are, you are them. Yeah. <laughs> you are them essentially, yeah. It's like one of the things in podcasting is when you or and not just Doctor Who podcast, but sort of podcasting in general, is the people who put on that nerd voice. Yeah. From was it Kevin Smith or something, or oh not the what the comic shop owner in The Simpsons? Oh, that is that it. Yeah, yeah. Worst, comic worst episode ever or something like that. They usually say, don't they? Or, oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But the people who do that impersonation generally tend to be the people who'd be saying that anyway. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not making a political point there. I'm just pointing out that sometimes <laughs> the butt of the joke doesn't realise that they're the butt of the joke. Mm. But it's a joke. <clears throat> and yeah, but idi sure idiocracy is exactly <laughs> the same thing. And so was Office Space. I mean, if we'd have been doing this podcast about non-sci-fi movies, I think I would have chosen Office Space because Office Space is just as brilliant mm -hmm. in many of the same ways as idiocracy is. It takes a small group of characters who work in an office and kind of does all the same kinds of jokes but shows up office work for what it kind of is you're pushing pens 
a lot of those jobs in those kind of environments, same as any jobs in any kind of environment, you're just facilitating something else. Mm-hmm. Very few people actually in their line of work actually properly achieve something. I mean, if you think about their... Well, how many doctors are there on this planet? But how many are actually curing cancer? You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, and this is not a criticism. Doctors do very valuable work. But basically, they're just facilitating people maintaining their health. That and, and although that's an achievement on a personal level with all those different people, it's not an achievement in the same way as curing cancer would be. No. And what I'm saying is, if you work in an office... You are making achievements on a daily basis, but your achievements are not of that magnitude. So that the situation is that somebody else could probably be doing the same thing as you are, and it wouldn't really make a great deal of difference. As, of course, it can't when you retire and somebody else comes in and does your job. Exactly. Mm. I'm not, obviously, I'm not attacking the jobs that anybody (laughs) does here. I'm just making a point about... I'm just getting a wage. It's all I want. Just making a point about the sort of transience of our working lives. Absolutely, yeah, no. I mean, I found idiocracy this, this horrible two sided thing where it was really funny, but this kind of sadness that the people who should be watching it and thinking, oh, yeah, I need to change my way, won't, won't get it. Yeah, the people who ought to change their ways because of it yeah. would just think, oh, I, I, it's I great. watched it and I was thinking Big Brother, I was thinking Hollyoaks, I was Towie. thinking Towie, I was thinking X Factor, oh. I was thinking all those things where I just think people just please just use your grey matter. And um, yeah. well, that's, I'm, that's, I'm getting all sad now, I'm going to stop. That's gonna that, stop well, this. you know, that you blame onto newspapers, press, magazines, TV, because they're just feeding us full of this rubbish. Mm. But I'm sure there's been plenty of films uh, written about that. And books. Mm. And on that note, David Kitchen writes from Australia. Have I two? Are you going to go there? Go Dear Blue Box team. <laughs> I can't do it. Having now recovered from the shock-induced coma Death in Heaven put me in. Sorry, I really quite enjoyed season eight, but that episode wasn't to my personal taste at all. In the last fortnight, I've started catching up with your podcasts, loving each of them and wanting to write in with a few comments. On the topic of sci-fi sagas, I'd like to put another argument as to why Empire is the best of the Star Wars trilogy. Not only does it have the set-piece action scenes at either end, but in the middle it slows the pace down for the scenes with Luke, Yoda and Obi-Wan's ghost on Dagobah. These scenes are, in my opinion, the heart and soul of the trilogy, and everything else in the three films revolves around them. I do agree with you, however, that all three Jurassic Park movies are great. I was 12 when the first movie came out, and for my peers and I, that first scene with the Brachiosaurus, Welcome to Jurassic Park, was our Star Wars moment. A moment in film that seemed to change everything and would always be remembered. Absolutely, yeah. Enjoyed the standalone movies episode, especially the conversation about Close Encounters. I visited the Devil's Tower last year, and there really is something amazing and beautiful about that place. However, I haven't ever seen E.T. I was just too young to see it when it came out, and by the time it was around on video and TV, I felt I was too old for it, in that foolish way that children do. Given your praise, I'll make a point of watching it now. Do, David, it's well worth it. 
it straddles that fine line between Steven Spielberg getting too saccharine, but just staying on the right side of it, I think. Mm. Uh, I love it. <clears throat> I'm agreeing a lot with your comments on the first two eras podcasts. However, as none of you really enjoy season 18, I want to defend it. And then there's a paragraph about season 18. And then he goes on and says, finally... <laughs> What's up, Lee? <laughs> Didn't all hate it, did we? Hang on. T- <laughs> I'm sorry, Lee, what's the problem? That's right, you carry on. He says, finally, whilst I appreciate it that it would have been impractical, I think it's a shame that the Virgin New Adventures from 91 to 97 didn't get to be mentioned as an era. The years these books were published roughly match my years of high school, i.e. perfect fan age, so will always be my era of the show. So an honourable mention to that era. Um, can I just mention that, <clears throat> if you're a fan of that, I'm writing Jim Mortimer's work is within that era, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Mm. He has just started up a personal project on Facebook. He's going back to his old novels, and uh, like Blood Heat, and he's going back and doing almost like director's cuts of them, so he's going to expand mm. on them. and Yeah, he's revisiting his old works and uh, embellishing them and mm. making them, you know. A different beast, so it's going to be a quite an interesting project. I think he's actually Facebook, going to possibly so. relate them to the new series and things like that and link it in more with what's been going on yeah. and continuity things, I think. Anyway, David says, all the best for the year ahead and hopefully we'll have another fun season with Peter Capaldi from David in mm. Melbourne. Oh, really? Mm. Just come back from there. Oh, it's nice to hear from him because we've yeah. not heard from him for a while. If I'd known he was out there <laughs> at the time, I could have gone and visited him. <laughs> He said, whilst I can't agree that season 18 is the period that the show starts to become introspective, a process that ramps up considerably with season 20, as a kid I found the episodes gorgeous... I can't disagree with that, he says. As a kid, I found the episodes gorgeous to look at. As a young teenager, I loved that these stories were aimed at the smarter kid in the class that always put their hand up. And as an adult, (laughs) I admire the variety... Tom's performance, the ideas in each of the stories, and the overarching theme of foreboding that builds up to Legopolis and the end of an era for the show. Did it miss the mark with other viewers? Probably, and I get why, but I love it. And even if there's less humour than usual, it still contains the wonderful line, and this type's not really my forte. Oh. <clears throat> Do we universally hate it? I really like that season. I can't remember how we felt about it, actually, no. Well, it was. It was. I think it's a mixed bag, wasn't it? It was, it was probably bad. me dominating the podcast. <laughs> yeah, miserable old kid. It's all burgundy and beige. <laughs> I said that, but that—that's a nice thing. Right, we just stopped for a cup of tea and a pee. You can tell. <laughs> and while we did, we brought up the subject of why are we talking about something not Doctor Who in the tenth anniversary year? And the point is, these movies are all movies that we were drawn to because we were Doctor Who fans. And that's really it, isn't it? We... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think Doctor Who gave that kind of catalyst, that seed of, oh, we we should really be watching and enjoying sci-fi. And it did. It helped me, got me into it, definitely. Aliens, yeah. We, we've always said, though, that Doctor Who kind of reflects what's going on in society at the time and it reflects everything else that's going on. So why not look at the reflection for a bit? It all, re- it all reflects back anyway, doesn't it? And it recharges our batteries. Absolutely. So, on the subject of recharged batteries, Simon, your second choice is a film that I went to see 
on the same day that I went to see the film Crash by David Cronenberg, who I mentioned a few minutes ago. And I've got to say, that was a very strange afternoon. Me and a mate. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we both had the day off work. It was a Friday. Both films had come out. So we went to see one at two o'clock and one at four o'clock or whatever. And I think we saw this one first and Crash afterwards. And my God, wasn't that the oddest of days? <laughs> it was the fifth element. It was. Luc Besson. Yeah. Go yeah. on then, in a nutshell, for people who don't know what the fifth element is. Oh, God. I mean, you're saying about Tron being a folly. I don't know, is it a folly? Because it does just work, doesn't it? It's yeah. Star Wars made as a cartoon in live action. Yeah, with it costumes is. by Jean-Paul Gaultier. Yeah. Well, with one particular costume by Jean-Paul Gaultier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're skipping you... through now, we're skipping through. It's kind of Blade Runner. As you say, it's Star Wars meets Blade Runner meets... Blade Runner, the meets a Mobius comic, version. Meets yeah. the Inkle or something like that. And um, it's just an oddity, really. But I just think it's, it's gorgeous. And it's it has a, the best performance ever yeah. by Mia Jovovich. Is that how you say Jovovich? Mila Jovovich. Oh, thank you. Or something like that. that. Yeah. Her, vo- her performance is just gorgeous. And possibly the best performance ever by her. Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. yeah I think so. Well, one of them. That's kind of odd. Bruce Willis is definitely playing larger than life. He's playing it as a caricature. Yeah, I know, but it works. It does, in the same um, way as his character in Moonlighting yeah. worked. He's playing that, yeah. kind of. He's not taking himself <clears throat> too seriously. No, Bruce no. Willis is always better when he's not taking himself too seriously. It is a very odd film to watch, because there are moments where I'm cringing, thinking... You know, oh, this isn't as good as I remember it being. And then I suddenly think, do you know what? Just go with it. Is this like Doctor Who? You've got many rubber masks. Do you know what? If there was a chunk of Fifth Element in the last Dread movie, yes, it would have been perfect. Yeah, we've said this many times, haven't we, about Dread? Yeah, you know, it should be a should have been a mixture of the the Stallone and the new. Mm. You know, that that kind of cityscape should have been more fun Mm. with a very serious Dread underneath it. And this fifth element does have elements of, I think, 2000 AD running all the way through. Yeah, in home, homes in it. I mean, the whole cast. I just, I yeah. just love it. Really, even it's quite a it, simple plot, though, isn't it? Really, if you think about it. Well, the fifth it. element is. If you take the plot, even possibly the script from Fifth Element, and give it to a different director, if you'd given the script of the Fifth Element to Ridley Scott, he would have royally buggered it up. <laughs> but Luke Besson making a Luke Besson movie. And uh, um, of late, his films haven't had such critical praise as some of his early ones did. But his films have always been mental. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's mental. This is the most mental of them all. In a way, The Fifth Element is a little bit like Mars Attacks. In that you give somebody with a... I hesitate to say indie sensibility because it's not. It's... It's an eccentric sensibility. Mm. You give somebody with an eccentric sensibility Hollywood money and ask them to make a Hollywood money movie, like um, Jean-Pierre Junot yeah. on Alien Resurrection, it doesn't work. Fifth Element doesn't work. It flopped. Mm. But having said that, much like something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's one of those movies that if you go in and you get it, it sings. Mm. It does. It's great mm. after a few beers, that one. It's funny you say that. Rocky Horror just doesn't work for me. Oh, I can't stand it. 
But really? it, yeah. it, it is. Cost- it is oh, weird. It's... It is weird. It's, it's quite dis. Uh, what's the word? word? Dis- disparate. Don't know. But it seems to have different tones throughout the film. You mm. have got a tone that runs all the way through it, like you say, the eccentricity of the director. But there are moments where you kind of think, oh, it's a bit like Indiana Jones, it's a bit like this, a bit like that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? And you think there's but all Blade the while, Runner. there's a Blade Runner moment. Definitely. But all the while, all those different bits are shot through with this larger-than-life characteristic that mm. Luke Besson's given it. And possibly just... the best costume ever made for any female character in any film ever. It is absolutely my favourite oh, and Oh, and such a big use of the colour orange. Yes. Which is an underused colour. Of all the colours in the spectrum, it is probably only... for very good reason. Oh, no, I love a the graphic color designer or... talking. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, I just, I just, I love the purity, and there's almost it's strangely, because, although it's so contrived and everything's thought out and everything's just like this big statement, as you say, of of his kind of indie sensibility, there is a naivety and a purity to it. Do you know what it is? It strikes me it's the movie that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy should have been. Mm, Because I've always said with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the plot is the least important bit. And the TV series works because the plot's taking place in the background, but it's all the stuff that's on top, all Mm -hmm. the embellishments Mm -hmm. that make it what it is. And when you cut all that stuff out to get it down to 90 minutes, you lose the point of it. What Luke Besson does with The Fifth Element... It takes the same sort of idea that the plot has to be there, but it's the least important part. And instead of sort of having lots of peripheral stuff, the kind of stuff that you'd have to ditch to boil it down to 90 minutes, he makes that peripheral stuff the characters. Mm. So instead of having uh, sidebars and offshoots and things like that, what it instead does is makes those an integral part of what the characters are doing. Mm. So all that mad stuff that you would expect to be sort of snipped away is all there on screen, which might be why it wouldn't work for a general audience, because the general audience is expecting the plot to be more important. Yeah. yeah. When did it come out, roughly? Mid-90s? Same year as Crash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think there was... I think a, you're right. I think it was mid-95 I don't something. think there was anything on sci-fi-wise, that was anything <clears> near <throat> to that. It was the most colourful explosion on the on the, on the the uh, cinema screen. Mm. So I went to see it at the cinema, and I came away going, that was... I walked out thinking that's one of the best films I've ever seen <laughs> at the time. I was just like... It's, it's because I think we were starved of, of ridiculous... Well, sci-fi had gone top, into yeah. a... After the... It seemed to just disappear of its own bummer. Well, after the Star Wars boom, sci-fi went back. It must be 94, 95, because, because it was yeah. all the, the, around the time of Trip Hop and things, because Tricky was in there, wasn't he? He was mm. very of the time. Sorry, oh, yeah. yes. yes Didn't was. mean to yeah. disturb you. Sorry. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was 95, might have been 94. Mm. Yeah. And it was just before... The Star Wars prequels came out, mm. and before Matrix, and before all the you know stuff was mm. a lot different. Uh, you know, in the late nineties, it suddenly changed again, didn't it? And the technology was getting well, better, and because <clears throat> there's no much as I don't like the Matrix, what it did was <clears throat> it was one of a series of films at the end of the nineties and the early noughties that made sci-fi okay to like mm. for a mainstream audience. Independence Day, for all that we said. I don't think you two guys liked it very much. It made sci-fi acceptable for a mainstream audience. Mm. And so did The Matrix. And The Fifth Element came just before that. 
so it didn't work. So that didn't happen with this film. It's funny you say The Matrix because I've always said that I would have liked The Matrix to just stop with the one film and make it a gem. Yeah. And The Fifth Element is a gem. The Fifth Element has bags of humour running all the yeah. way through it. Matrix has got none. No. No. But no, but that was it. That that period was all wearing black. It was all dark glasses. It was all X files. It was all everybody in suits. It was very kind of. It was like a yuppie <coughs> game coming through, but on a more kind of cool. You had to be cool. Everything was mm, cool. Mm. Still is. Um, but the Fifth Element. There's nothing cool about that film. It's complete. <laughs> it's it's like you're driving into a carnival with eyes full of candy floss. Yeah, and, it is. You know, <laughs> falling into <laughs> into a puddle. But full visually, of I mean, God, it's so clever because visually. What was the one thing you come away from? I came away with it thinking about a yellow taxi, I, and, and then and then uh, when I eventually got that special edition DVD, the DVD looks like the yellow taxi with the yeah. yellow and that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. probably my design sensibility as well is is kicking in as well. So yeah. I do I do pick up on those it. It is a beautiful film to watch. Yeah, you know. and 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 interestingly, it's it's so brilliant that Jr. mentioned Hitchhiker's Guide because I've been trying to get across <laughs> to you. We have this ongoing thing. And I know I'm in the minority of, of people who can take something from the yeah, Hitchhiker's movie. So, yeah, yeah. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. I think it's I, fine. I think I can I can draw from that film, as JR says, that same naivety uh, through it, and this whole and the way it looks, it's beautiful. It and it does look like a pop video, same as Fifth Element does. Mm. So and and they are pop video directors. Yeah, the, the people who made the Hitchhiker's movie. Yeah. So it's that same, same, same thing. Yeah. I. I and as always, I just love these films that almost shouldn't exist. Right. That, that, yeah. That, that all this money's been spent on. I mean, and somebody in office somewhere is saying, how the f- bloody hell did, <laughs> did this get made? The Hitchhiker just doesn't have the X Factor for me. It doesn't have that thing that makes it makes me want to rewatch it again. No. In fact, there are bits in it. Obviously, we were talking about the plot. The plot isn't important, but there are certain words in it. There's certain jokes and punchlines that don't yeah, yeah, that don't yeah. happen, mm. and you just no. you know I know the material so well, yeah. And I'm not that precious. I like things uh-huh. to change. I was going to use the word precious. No, but, yeah. I'm not that precious, but I I do get annoyed when you you know that when everything before it has worked and this one doesn't. You know, the radio show works for me. The TV show works for me. All the different versions of book. it, even the book that came mm. out. You know, the, the kind of strange book. That came out before the film did. I really liked that. There was some great ideas in it. The film didn't work. But with Fifth Element, you, you don't really know what to expect. It's not riffing on something that's already written. It's it came from nowhere, um, and there's just this very fun element to it. Is it is great and kids and, and, and it. Finn an, absolutely loves it. My son loves it. Gets an it. emotional response, I think. An emotional response. Yeah. There's no nice emotional response at the end. I thought I'd get an emotional response when they, you know, it's the big thing. It's the love they find each other. And spoilers. It's, you know, I don't think we should necessarily worry about spoiling all no, these old films. No, 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 because the Fifth Element is a ride. Let's face it, it's it a, ride. a ride. It is a big ride. Yeah. I'll oh, tell yeah. you what; it's not a million miles away from is Russell T Davies's version of Doctor Who, mm. especially things mm. like the End of the World and Gridlock. Yeah, but just yeah, a yeah. more general the end of the world, sense. I just thought it was really hitchhikers. Mm. And Fifth Element, though, as well. Yes, very <clears> much so. But Rusty Davis's Doctor Who has that larger-than-life, colourful, slightly eccentric sense to it. Yeah, and then Things the like, years, Apple, Apple, <clears throat> whatever. The bit where, um, yeah. right at the start of The End of the World, there's that special effect shot of the two little space darts coming in to land on Platform 1. Mm. And the piece of music they play 
is not kind of Star Wars-y type sci-fi music, but it's a bit of a waltz, like the Blue Danube. Mm. But what happens is, instead of <clears throat> in 2001, where the Blue Danube's playing as the spaceships are doing spaceshipy type things, as you get to the shot and there's a bit of waltz music playing, the two little darts that are coming to land suddenly do a skip in time to the music yes. before darting into the spaceship. Yeah. And that is exactly the kind of thing that you've got all the way through the fifth element. Mm. Actually, <clears> you've <throat> got the madness of Toxic, as well, Britney Spears, Toxic, Toxic being played, and you get an outside shot of the platform one, and it, it just works brilliantly. And, you know, with the fifth element, you've got that opera. wonderful, wonderful <coughs> bizarre opera. Funny you say about that end of the world moment is, see, this is where we relate it back to Doctor Who, it does work. Um, <laughs> that is the moment because as good as Rose was, and I thought, yeah, they've brought it back and they've put the the money into it and the energy into it and it is a, it's going to be great. <clears throat> that was the moment when I knew, all of a sudden, I'd fallen in love with the new series because I, all of a sudden I realised that there was more going on than just a story with money pumped into it being nicely made to the best of the BBC's ability. All of a sudden, so whoever was in control of this programme... Was giving it personality. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Right, should we go from the sublime to the ridiculous? <laughs> or the ridiculous to the sublime, I should say. We're just going from one extreme to another now. Yeah, it's Lee's choice next. You've chosen contact. Mm. When we were trying to decide what to, to bring to this, this table, there are a ton of films, which are like The Highlander, Dark Crystal, all these other ones. But some of those I watch and watch and watch, and some affect me when I watch them, and some affected me the first time I watched them. And Contact is a weird thing, because I'd never thought I would like it. In fact, I avoided watching it for quite a while, thinking, oh, this is going to be pap. Um, just simply looking at the cover, going, yeah, whatever. It's but got I, a very dull-looking cover. It's got a dull-looking cover. But actually, I do have a bit of a, an affection with uh, big radar dishes and stuff like that. I do like all that. I go to Goon Hilly in, in Cornwall every time we go down there. Not at the moment, because it's closed, but... Um, so I, I love all of that. I love the idea of searching for extraterrestrial life. And the and the, the story kind of... I thought, well, okay, I'll just watch it. And I got the, the video out from the library, put it on one Sunday afternoon. Um, and I got to the end of it, and I was... I thought... I couldn't decide whether it was a really good film or not. And I thought, well, I think that was pretty good. I absolutely, utterly fell in love with the opening sequence, which is just literally a, a pullback from the Earth with lots of radio transmissions of modern day. And the further from the Earth and through the galaxy it goes, the uh, further back in time the music goes, till you get to kind of hit the speeches and stuff like that. And, and then it goes quiet, and it's absolutely silent for around about 20, 30 seconds, which is unheard of for an opening of a film. Silence. And then it goes into her eye, and she's looking for a telescope, or she's looking at the sky, and her dad comes in with a telescope. And it's, and it's just... An absolutely beautiful moment. I've got tingles just talking about it because mm, I, I mm. love it. I, I think it's possibly the best open to any film ever. I love it. It's gorgeous. Um, but the actual story itself, I, I kind of went, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's all right. I quite enjoyed that. And I thought, well, in choosing the stories tonight, they had to be ones that I, they had to be films that I keep going back to and keep watching, even though I'm not entirely sure why I keep doing it. <laughs> And uh, and contact is one of those things. And the more I look at it, the more I realise it was it was tapping into the way that I was thinking about the world at the time. It's a very 
interesting plot. It's based on a Carl, Sa- uh, Carl Sagan book um, that was actually originally thought to be made into a film in 79 and it all went to production hell and never got, never got made. So he made the book, he wrote the book in 85 um, and that went through a few kind of moments as well and eventually he managed to get it on screen in 97 I think it is with Jodie Foster at the helm. And it's a story of a, a, a SETI scientist, search for extraterrestrial intelligence scientist, who has got this dream. You know, I described her having this passion for the stars. Her father gives her this passion. And all she wants to do is just find life out there. And she spends her entire life listening, literally, to radio signals. Almost like a complete waste of time for most people. And in fact, a lot of the people in the story at the beginning genuinely think that she's wasting her life away. But she's always got a pair of headphones on. She's always out there listening to, you know, white noise, listening for signals. So you're a Cheeran fan. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and suddenly they get a signal, they get a pulse. And this is where it all kicks off. And it's that moment when she gets it, it's so beautifully filmed and cleverly filmed as well. I My heart was in my throat. Because obviously you know that she's going to, somehow have a contact with alien because it's called contact for god's sake but actually i'd forgotten at that point i was just getting into the groove of the film itself and then it caught me unawares and i was oh i'm really in it and then it it becomes very interesting because then you have different characters involved that are trying to stop her or not stop her but take over the project rather and claim it for themselves she's quite a humble kind of person personality in it then you have a religious aspect there's this other chap that turns Matthew up, McConaughey yeah who comes in who's a very religious Matthew McConaughey kind of character and obviously you're going to have this science for religion uh, you know battle going on which works to some extent and then doesn't her it. dad it doesn't yeah it doesn't actually work all the way through but it kind of does and I think the point is it gets you talking about the subject, and that's what I came away with. I won't go completely into the summary of the entire film, but you know it gets to a point in the film where uh, she's chosen. She becomes chosen to make first contact, um, and a few things happen, which you know. Th- Let's not go any further. No, no, no. But there's a few things that happen. It's quite important because there's a few things that happen in it where you really feel for her and you think, oh, you know, it's not happening for her. And then something goes wrong drastically and she gets chosen. Um, And then, you know, she comes away at the end of the film having a relatively similar experience to anybody who's got a faith trying to prove something that you just cannot prove. It was, I loved it. And I, I keep going back to it every couple of years. And I still don't know entirely why I utterly love this film. But I think it's because it, like I said, tapped into my thought patterns at the time of what's this all about? What's this this world all about? You know, what is religion? Uh, you know, is science is the world completely made of maths? Are we all made of maths. And blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and this kind of brought those questions. I just thought it was a very intelligent science fiction film. Jodie Foster's eminently watchable anyway, isn't she? She's just yeah, amazing. she's a funny creature, isn't she? Yeah, See, yeah. when I saw the word contact on your list, I was thinking Steve Guttenberg in a swimming pool and some old people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Cocoon. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, why has he chosen a Stephen Guttenberg film? Cocoon. No, that, that, that's dismal. <laughs> should, we, yeah. should we move on to mine? Unless you got anything to add to that? I've, it's, again, it's one that I've seen it once and I know what you're saying mm. and I completely disagree. I, 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 it's alright, you disagree. It felt a little bit like a Close Encounters retread. 
yeah. in some respects. Yeah. But it was no, it. No, it was uh, far better than I, I thought think it, it had a be. it had a massive heart to the film. That's what that that's what yeah. who through. directed it? Do you remember? Zemeckis, I think. I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. Who did the Back to the Future films? He did indeed. And it couldn't be more different, could it? Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of a that's kind of an odd one. And he doesn't really bring that sensibility to it. Nothing even close. He, no. I mean, he's he's one of those directors that can again he's hit and miss, isn't he? But he does things by numbers. He does things by the book, and it it feels perfectly paced as a film to me. It, it, it's faultless as a piece of storytelling. I think I've only watched the one it, without giving away the ending. Isn't is there an ambiguity to the end? Yeah, I think there, and there is, always seems there? to be with these. Yeah, films. there has to be. There because has there's to no be. Answer. Yeah, because mm. it's kind of it's a bit like in Doctor Who, where if Russell T Davis has Daleks invading Earth, and they're all over the Earth in the episode at the end of the series, you can't go back and reset that afterwards. So films like Contact... I always said Cocoon then. <laughs> films like Contact, you're kind of... I mean, yeah, in a film like that, you can have a non-ambiguous ending if that's the statement you want to make. But if the statement you want to make is about the... If you want to bring plausibility to the characters, you have to leave the ending ambiguous because otherwise you're making too much of a statement. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that's what I thought at the end is kind of you kind of got to pull back from making the statement because if you make the statement, you're making a different kind of a film. Which is exactly the reason why I don't like the director's cut of Donnie Darko. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's it. I think the very, very last part of that film. Is the bit which I think it fails on, just because I think endings to films are almost impossible to get right anyway. Mm. There, there aren't that many films with endings that are just absolutely perfect in my book. Stoles is pretty good because uh, we're having a big party in the Ewoks are partying. That's like that's an ending, but um, no, I yeah, it it is odd because you know Carl Sagan is a scientist, but he's and he's writing religion in there. Zemeckis is trying to make both of them. An equal thing. Oh, they could possibly coexist. Equally valid. Equally valid. Uh, more like coexisting, in fact. Um, he's wrong, but uh, <laughs> that and that's where I disagree with it. But actually, it just brings up it brings up conversation. So when I talk to other people that have seen it, we're then there for about 35, 40 minutes just talking about slapping your bollocks. No, just uh, talking about the uh, you know what the film's about, what the what it's all about. What what is what is it all about? <laughs> I'll tell you what it's all about. My next choice. Go on then. My second choice, totally different again. Nicholas Meyer's Time After Time. Which is one of those films that everybody should know, but a lot of people probably don't. I don't think you can buy it, can you? Not in the UK. No, I no, think I caught the that. very end of it. I think I've possibly seen the end twice. Oh. Oh, really? It's a great I got a copy imported because I just love it so much. I thought it was a TV film when I first saw it. No, Why do I know the name, name Nicholas Meyer? Nicholas Meyer wrote the first Star Trek film. Was it the first one or was it Roth of Khan? Roth of Khan. Didn't direct and Six as well? Did he? Well, I discovered Country. Yes. Did he? Did he? Yeah. The same director and writer. Could be. The two good ones. Yeah, Six is possibly my favourite. Right. Nicholas Meyer's mm. a very clever man. Yeah. Anyway, time after time, in a nutshell, for people who don't know, yeah. posits that just it, in case, just in case people can't understand what um, Giles Annie's saying, in a nutshell. Anyway, carry on. Why? What did? What did I say? Nutshell. <laughs> oh, very, very yeah, amusing. Somehow, um, my daughter started saying that um, men's dagnly bits are called peanuts. <laughs> 
actually really good. I know. It's dangerously close to another word, isn't it? I don't yeah. know where she's... Well, she's not got it wrong. No. That's come, the back from that... the, come back from the playground. It's the bit that pees and the nuts. It's supposed to be a Christian school. Well, yeah, um, fair enough. Anyway. Time after time, H.G. Wells actually builds a time machine, which... Jack the Ripper uses to travel forwards into the future and lands in 1979 San Francisco. H.G. Wells follows him and tries to track him down. And that's it. It's kind of a fish out of water thing with, you know, your sort of Victorian era H.G. Wells stuck in 1979 San Francisco. And it's lovely and it's funny and it's gentle and it's filled with great big amount of heart and it's also quite scary and it's got Jack the Ripper and some of it's quite nasty and it's also got just a little bit of timey-wimey thrown in and it's just one of those films that once you see it you never get over it it just lives in your memory and the the time machine itself is really nice I mean I know that the Mm. Time machine from the 60s. Looking back at it now, the special effects aren't very good. No, okay. Well, the time machine is is, again very, very nice, but it's a lovely design. Who is it who plays H.G. Wells again? Malcolm McDowell, of course, with a moustache. Couldn't be further away from his performance in A Clockwork Orange if he tried, (laughs) but it's just lovely. It's like it's almost a comedy of manners. Yes. There's a bit where he goes into the bank to try and get some money out and the conversation between H.G. Wells from 1890 or whatever and um, Mary Steenburgen as a 1979 bank teller in an American bank and the conversation between the pair of them is just delightful with both of them sort of missing the context of what the other person's <laughs> saying. It's beautifully written. It is a Miss Gem. I think if anybody can get it out, and, you know, or get oh, it on YouTube, I, maybe. I don't no, know. I looked online. I no, can't really struggled. It's one of those really? films. It'll probably come out again with a bit of a. Cl- it might be. It's like never been out in this country, hasn't it? No. What's going on? Well, as I say, the times I saw it, it was it was on TV, and I think it was late at night on Channel Four or yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was very hard slot. Yeah. It's a, an interesting one for you to choose, though, Jay. Oh, I just love it. It's okay. A delightful film. Who directed it? Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Myers is a like, writer-director. Yeah. Writes and directs. But he doesn't do very much. Or hasn't done very much. I think apart from the Star Trek and Time After Time, I couldn't honestly tell you what else he's done. Mm-hmm. But it's got... It's got... It's like Sherlock Holmes. It's, it's a little Sh- bit like... like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. It's a little bit like... You know, the Stephen Moffat, Mark Gatiss, yeah. Sherlock. In that they're presenting Sherlock as almost the character that he was in the original novels, Mm. transplanted into the modern day. Mm. And uh, there's a disconnect between the character and his surroundings in their version of Sherlock. And you've got exactly the same sort of disconnect in time after time Mm. with H.G. Wells because he is out of time. But it's just so delightfully played. Everything about it, it's one of those films where everything about it kind of rings with a sort of truth, because the writing is just every line of dialogue, every act that any of the characters does throughout the entire film feels genuine and real. Mm. And it's like every single line he's written in that script, he's thought about 
I mean, there's a particular scene where they enter a room after somebody's been murdered in it, and um, that that lived with me for a bit. Uh, it's not very nice. Oh, it's um, some pretty nasty that's stuff. Like a horrific kind of moment. And there's but a real it absolutely needs to be in there, so you know that Jack the Ripper mm. is a bloody threat. 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 <laughs> he's a he's a he's a threat, and he is. It's just. You know, it's horrible. But it's it works it really, really well. It's one of those films that has a huge twist. Yup. As you're getting towards the end. Like, is it Extreme Measures with Hugh Grant and Gene Hackman? There's a brilliant bit. The first time I watched that film, I didn't really know what to expect. I think it's called Extreme Measures. I could be completely wrong. It's directed by a British director, but it's a Hollywood movie. Hugh Grant plays a doctor who discovers, he, he works in a sort of late-night inner-city surgery, discovers that somebody's experimenting on homeless people. Wow. So he <laughs> tries to, <clears throat> because homeless people are turning up dead, having been experimented on, mm. and he realises... That's what I do. <clears throat> well, he kind of realises that Gene Hackman is the guy who's been doing this stuff, and he's experimenting with bone marrow and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I've heard of this. So Hugh Grant discovers that it's Gene Hackman who's been doing it. And then you get this point where Gene Hackman catches him, as it were. And then the screen goes to black. And then when the picture comes back up, and there's like quite a bit of pause in the black, so that you know that something serious has happened, the picture comes back up. And Hugh Grant's lying in a, ble- in a bed, completely disabled from the neck down. And you're thinking... My God, is this that film actually gone to the gone that far? And Sarah Jessica Parker plays nurse who works in the same surgery as Hugh Grant, and you think she's going to take over the storyline at that point and get Gene Hackman because you know Gene Hackman's going to be got by the end of the movie. Actually, it doesn't transpire that way, but that's a huge shock at that point of the film, especially mm. if you don't know what to expect going in, where they'll throw in something where you think at this juncture that could actually have happened. And in time after time, about three quarters of the way through, there's a moment like that. Mm. And that really, really hits home hard. And I'm not going to say anything more about it than mm. that, because I shouldn't. I thought you were going to say Hugh Grant wakes up with a duck bill or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another yeah, film okay. that should be made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the film. But we've just had a... On the Starburst radio, they just had a thing about... Well, we just had a feature about time travel movies. And they also had a thing where they talked about great sci-fi movies. And they all said time after time, what a wonderful, wonderful film. It's a little... My favourite film of all time is A Matter of Life and Death. Yeah, you've said this. And it's kind of got that... It kind of got that same tone. Okay. So it's right up there amongst my absolute favourites. Great personal choice. Gerard Gray says, Hello, Blue Box podcast team. I loved your latest podcast. I really enjoyed Mark's film choices. They sound great, and I might just check them out. Looking forward to the final part of your era's podcast in a few weeks. The Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes years will always be my favourite era of Doctor Who. Such a great variety of stories and characters. As much as I love the RTD years, my second era's choice goes to Stephen Moffat for all the great things he has done for the show. Way too many to mention. That's all, guys. Thanks for the great podcast every week. Thank you, Gerard. Oh, 
that's coming next week. The final four eras. Mm. Um, well, we'll see what order our listeners voted them up in. Mm. Be interesting. It's be exciting. What's next? Right, flips open the sheet to see who's next and what's next. Simon, it's your third choice. Oh, go on then. Tell us what it is. It's um. Uh, Just sorry. say what it is. All right. God, this is radio. People don't want to listen to you going. <laughs> <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. Yay. Why Guardians of the Galaxy then? Because being a huge superhero fan, I felt the need to have something represent that, that we, I believe we're in a golden age of where people are finally getting the superhero movie right. Yeah. And this obviously, we're talking about science fiction films, and this is a science fiction film done better than most. Have you seen it, Lee? I have. Is it good? It is. Give us the basic premise in a nutshell, then. Basic premise is it all starts with a young boy being picked up from Earth and being taken off to the stars, and we don't see what happens to him, but we see him grown up, and he's become this character. He's got this alter ego called Star-Lord. He's basically become this uh, small-time crook, isn't he, basically? A bit of a... Mercenary, I suppose. Mercenary, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Picking up artefacts and things like that. And um, as the story goes on, he gets himself into trouble, but he meets various different fugitives. Is he a good guy? He's a good guy. Right, he's a good guy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 he's a bit of a Han Solo, isn't he? That sort of thing. Exactly. But um, all the way through, you have this massive tie to Earth. Although Earth only appears very much at the start, the rest of it is completely off in a different galaxy. So although it's part of the Marvel Universe, we don't see any of that. Apart from the mention of certain uh, races that have kind of in- influenced yeah. other films at some point. Right. When I ask for the premise, what are the Guardians of the Galaxy? Guardians of the Galaxy is essentially the team. Right. That's what I'm after. I want right, to know what okay. the team is and what the, the team is all about. The team is. Well, it's just the Star Lord who's. A, I don't want you to name the members well, of the team. I just wanted to tell me the premise of the team. The well, premise you, of the team is that they. You've got to name them to get the premise. Well, you have. <laughs> is it a bunch of superhero type characters who live in outer space doing the right thing? He's the nearest thing to a superhero. He's got no special powers, he's got guns and a mask. But the rest of them are aliens. That's it. They're aliens instead of superheroes. Yes. But they've all got so, their own agendas and their own plot lines and their own reasons for being there. And it just so happens that they all come together and they have to... Much in yeah, the way to a the Avengers have in Avengers Assemble. Yes. yes. So it's kind of like an outer space Avengers Assemble, yeah. wherein instead of being superheroes with superhero powers, mm. they're all different species of alien with the different... Powers and sensibilities the different species exactly, would have, I guess. Yeah. So each with their own backstory. That's what I mean about the but premise. It's, it's, it's a colourful universe and it's very comic based. It, it does feel like it's like a, you know, we were talking about the fifth element earlier. That's very comic based and colourful. This is mm. what you seem to go for. But Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, just gets it completely right. It's a so it's so out of space that you could easily alienate a lot of the viewers. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. potentially it might be too weird. Mm. But actually, I think they they hit it right. There's a talking raccoon in it, for good goodness sake. Yeah. You know, he's a hero of yours. 
It is a hero of mine. Yeah. I mean, the great thing for me, the personal connection is that uh, way back in 1978, when this first British version of the Star Wars comic came out, there were a, f- a number of comic strips in the back pages. So they'd give you a little section, a little episode from the adaptation of Star Wars, and then there would be two or three other strips. There would be like Tales of the Watcher, which was basically reprints of a lot of the um, the old 1950s yeah. uh, stories with a twist in the tale, you know. Tales of the Unexpected. Exactly, yeah. yeah um, but then there was also a strip called The Sword in the Star, if I remember rightly, and the character of Rocket Raccoon appeared in that. In 1978. And a few years later, there was another strip called Guardians of the Galaxy, and there was a completely different team with some very different characters, like, um, Ast- uh, I can't remember his name, but anyway, these were all characters from different planets way in the future. At some point, that comic strip got rewritten, and whoever wrote it, and I'll have to find this out, but they took a lot of these characters from all these disparate, different comic strips and put them together because Star Lord had his own strip at one point, and it was a beautifully drawn strip. Um, and the, again, like I say, these ideas that shouldn't work but do is that these Marvel could have gone for just another well-known character, another Captain America, another Thor. You know, we're going to get Black Panther. Right, like here's that. the point. Marvel Universe. Yeah. They are from the Marvel Universe, these characters, but they're and not how does very it, well known. And how does it tie in with Avengers? It will tie in in as much as the common enemy have already attacked uh, in, in in the Avengers movie, so the whole thing will cross over at some stage. So, what's the enemy in Guardians of the Galaxy? It's the it's Thanos, essentially, who's this character who you see right at the end. If you wait to the end of the credits on the Avengers movie, and you see him grin at the camera, mm. um, he's the guy who has this love affair with Death. That's going into sort of like the comic strip lore, but as far as I'm aware, that's that's it's going to head along the same lines. He's got some adopted daughters who he's augmented. One of the daughters becomes one of the Guardians of the Galaxy because she realises her stepfather or adopted father is evil. Um, Just essentially, he's he's after galactic domination, isn't he, really? Yeah, and actually she fights Karen Gillan. Yeah. um, Our Amy Pond, who is... One of his other daughters. ...unrecognisable in this role. She had her head shaved for the part. Mm -hmm. Um... Not really, not really real, realised, and I suppose you could CGI the hair out, but anyway. Um, <laughs> she looks great in it, and she's an excellent enemy, brilliant actress. Why just spend point. all that money CGI in the hair out if you can just shave somebody's head for a fiver? <laughs> yeah, she's for a fiver. She's happy too, isn't she? <laughs> so we you get your hair cut. <laughs> but. How much does it cost? <laughs> How much does it cost to shave somebody's head? Well, I don't know, really. I suppose a fiver's what it costs. I've never had my head shaved. <laughs> Oh, but what is brilliant about this film is that, more than anything, is it, it is a brilliant character piece, and each of the characters in it are as potent as the next. Are they funny? Yes, it's very. It's a very funny, funny film. Very it's, funny it's, film. I think it's the comedy beats are, are really good in it. In this one, I think Avengers Assemble, like you say, it's got some funny moments, but it's not hilarious all the way through. I I, I like it because I like superhero films, but this. This one, I don't know, it just seems to hit all the right things. It's very sci-fi, all the comedy's good in it, the effects are, well, faultless, really, and the storyline is a bit of fun. People are going to hate me for saying this. My favourite superhero movies are the two Fantastic Four movies. Yeah, how they're great. I like them. 
Yeah. Well, if you like them, you'll probably like this. It's quite similar. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I've not seen it, but Stroke it's one of, of genius. things that I will Stroke do. of genius. At the beginning of the film, you see Star-Lord as a small boy, and he's got a Walkman. Oh, this is lovely, yeah. And therefore, the whole soundtrack is built up of this tape, his awesome mixtape. He's got oh, really? one cassette. And you see him when he's grown up, and he's still listening to this one cassette. That oh, he, so yeah. what, is this like 80s music on it, 80, I suppose? Yeah. Uh, well, he's yeah. picked up in the 80s, isn't he? But yeah. he's basically his mum. His mum's made this tape up from yeah. it, and it's it's kind of... 70s stuff. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Very poignant, the opening's very poignant. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah. the choice of oh, music. Great. And you just wouldn't think, the just, juxtaposition of this, this 70s music, you know, some old funk and stuff like that, and these completely high-tech sci-fi situations, and it just works. Yeah, very well, clever. You look it's at some of the fun. old look at Star Cops and what they used for their theme tune, right? Which were I can't remember what it's called, but look at Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, the theme from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yeah. is Eagles. yeah, Eagles. the Eagles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It works. It works. It, yeah, it just works. And I just I think without being a doomsday, you know, I do think we're in a golden age of the superhero movie where they're getting it, getting it right and. You know, it may not happen again. I've seen the trailer for Ant-Man, and I'm not particularly... I'm a bit nonplussed by it, really. I, I hope to think they're going to start treading water with these films, but I think Guardians of the Galaxy is, is an example of them taking a risk on characters that aren't very well known, where they just say, you know, let, let's just make a film. The point is, Avengers Assemble made so much money mm. that people are going to... People are going to say, okay, so that's what's next. I've not heard of them, but it's, it's from the same team that gave yeah. us Avengers Assemble. Mm. Just take, go with it and, and take funny, the ride. Before we recorded the podcast, we were talking about Avengers Assemble, weren't we? And you were saying it isn't, you know, you, you, you're saying it's not as strong a film as people say it is. And I well, think, for me, because... Yeah, but I'm, I think you're right. I think you're right. And when I saw it, I thought it was the most amazing film ever, possibly my favourite film ever. And as time's gone on, that has kind of greyed out a little bit yeah. but I think it was just I was reacting to the fact that they'd managed to get this they'd managed to do ensemble. it yeah it was the first time they got all these different superheroes all interacting it was just like a yeah. dream on the screen it was a dream come true for, yeah it's a massive wet dream for a comic artist and comic lover isn't it I mean yeah. you, you finally got a film and it actually isn't that bad it's pretty good it's great it's yeah. great Dude. but Guardians of the Galaxy is better it better. is better what was the one thing that was missing from Avengers Assemble the one character who should have been there but wasn't Spidey. Yeah. He's back. They've got him for the next one. They've got him for the next one. You're worried, Apparently. aren't you? Again, well, they're talking about, about the origin story. He's not going to be Peter Parker, and I'm like, okay. Why is he not going to be Peter Parker? Oh, because they think they can do something better with it. Or oh, they may have they, over, may, they may have had two, two they've ideas, had two reboots. Why and two do you say they think they can do something better with it? Well, I, I, there seems to be this feel, they seem to feel this need to change things. I mean, it Did they be, change Iron Man? No. Why would they change Spider-Man then? But no, that's just a report on the web, as far as I'm aware. But I mean, that might be well wider than Mark. I mean, there's been case in point is the. Do you think it's going to be the replacement for Peter Parker? Is that what the report was? Possibly. I mean, they've done lots of things in the comic strip because you know they're just trying different things all the time, where they'll create a different character who becomes the hero. If they've got any so. good sense, they'll just have Spider-Man in as Peter Parker, won't they? Yes, yeah. that's the Spider-Man that everybody wants. Yes, and that's the Spider-Man that since Sam Raimi walked away from the movies after he was messed about with 
that you've not really had, I no. guess. I've not seen the two movies since Sam Raimi, but... I haven't, actually, no. I just keep hearing terrible things about them. Mm. And I like the Sam Raimi ones, because Sam Raimi has that comic book sensibility mm. that you need. Mm -hmm. It's like, again, like I say, if you put Ridley Scott on Spider-Man, he would bugger it up something chronic. <laughs> But you put somebody like Sam Raimi on it, and it's wonderful. Did you ever see Sam Raimi's Western? Talking of Sam yes. Raimi, The well, Quick, Quick and the, the Dead. Dead. I adore what that a wonderful film. That's a great film. One of the few Westerns I like. It's because he takes, he doesn't take the Western and do something with it. He takes the spaghetti Western yeah. and just kind of out-spaghettis it, really, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about that film is when I was, I was into making films at that point, years back, I used that as a... Um, as a, as a point of reference in the in the way that you film certain scenes, and it was basically the Evil Dead. You know, you stick a camera on a pole and it's your steady cam and all this sort of stuff. I, I just <laughs> love the, the the film work and it's outrageous and stupid and very very funny. Mm. Mm. Oh, it is yeah. exceptional. Oh no, I I couldn't recommend Guardians of the Galaxy more to you. I really couldn't. But you know, I will watch it. But you've got it on Blu-ray, and I don't have a Blu-ray player, so I shan't watch it this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, second best performance by um, Vin Diesel. Yeah, his other best performance was the Iron Giant. He should do more cartoons. <laughs> Did you not like him in Saving Private Ryan? Who, Vin Diesel? Mm-hmm. Can't even remember him. He was good in Saving Private Ryan. Was they he? all were. I don't think there's anybody who gives a duff performance in Saving Private Ryan. No, no. That's what made his name. That's what brought him to... Is it? Yeah. I thought it was Pitch Black. No, Pitch Black was after Saving oh, Private Ryan. That's how he got yeah. Pitch Black. That's a cracking film. Anyway. Yes. What, right. Pitch Black? Mm. Rewatch it. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Yeah, not the last two, but rewatch Pitch Black. <laughs> I didn't like Pitch Black, but I could see what people saw in it. But it really didn't appeal to me. I tell you what came Super out film. at the same time as Pitch Black and was ostensibly very similar, and that really got a panning and didn't do anything. But was Screamers? Screamers is brilliant. It's better than Pitch Black, I think. Well, yeah, that's the point I'm making. Yeah. I, it came out and Pitch Black got all the attention yeah. and all the Hollywood dollars, you know, all the revenues, I should say. And Screamers was a better film. And Screamers is based on Philip K. Dick's short story, isn't it? Is yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Is do you know Screamers? I know the name. Okay, quick sidebar about Screamers. It takes place on an alien world. There's been a war between mankind and robots, and the robots have developed. Oh, hang on, is it um, Matey from Robocop? Yeah, Peter Weller. I yeah. think I have seen it. But yeah, when it first came out. <clears throat> yeah, the robots have developed like androids to look like human beings so he goes through the film the film's about a journey from one side of the planet to the other yeah. to find a spaceport to escape from the planet yeah. but he doesn't know which of the people he meets are robots and which are human beings so he doesn't know who he can trust and there's some really good ideas in there That's and crappy. I think it does it really well but it just failed at the box office totally and, and it's just one of those films that nobody remembers anymore is there, yeah. like a really cheap knockoff sequel? No, it's not bad. It's oh, really? Right. Yeah, it's not quite as bad as the Starship Troopers uh, sequels. But uh... I like the Starship Troopers sequels. Do you? The second Starship Marauder. Troopers. Is it called Marauder? No, that's so... one of the animated ones, isn't it? Oh, yeah, might be that. Yeah, no, not the animated ones. It was an old TV series. It was great. The second Starship Troopers. Is that the outpost? 
The f- yeah, the first yeah. proper sequel at the Outpost. I thought that was a good film. Oh yeah, it was good, definitely. I just think it wasn't was the original. It was yeah. a different film from the original, but I thought they did it rather well. Because they took the same idea, you don't know who you can trust, yeah. stuck everybody in this isolated outpost, surrounded it with the insects, so the entire thing was taking place inside, almost like a bottle story. Yeah. And it was all about the people and the situation. And I thought, it's not one of the great movies. It's not something you'd write to your grandmother and say, you know, <laughs> get out of that box, you've got to see this film. No, it's worthy, it's worthy of the, it is worthy of the account. But I just, I just thought the Screamers sequel was better. Then. Did you ever see the third Starship Troopers? Because yes. the third one, they went back to try and do the first one again. Yeah, it was a bit of a disaster, it really. Was a disaster. But Is it was the one fun. Where they, they made a point of saying Rico's back or something like that. That's yeah, the original yeah. actor back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just a big was insect gore fest, but it was quite fun. It was fun. I like the whole universe. So I can't believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Any, yeah. Anything they do works in that universe to me. But uh... <laughs> right, my final choice. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978 version with Donald Sutherland. What an awesome movie. Another remake. Yeah, I was going to say, that's why I brought up the whole remake thing at the start, because I knew I was coming to this eventually. Made by Philip Kaufman, who was a contemporary of Spielberg and Lucas. But whereas Spielberg and Lucas and De Palma and other people like that were obsessed with the movies and sort of specifically kind of 40s movies and that kind of stuff. Mm. Kaufman was much more literary. He oh. After he made his initial success, and I go back to that same idea about when you're trying to make a success of yourself, you do the outrageous stuff so that you can get to what you really want to do afterwards when you've got the, you know, the presence to be able to do it. And so Philip Kaufman starts off with Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Wanderers. Did you ever see The Wanderers? No, I've heard of The Wanderers. It's kind of like The Warriors. It's very 50s set. There's lots of 50s music and it's more... But again, it's about gang warfare, that kind of thing. Mm. But it's quite a literary take on it. It's quite a... It's it's the lowest of lowbrow movies done in the highest of highbrow ways almost. It's a very odd film. Like American Graffiti meets The Warriors. Okay. An I'm odd have to film. Go and watch it. <laughs> it's an odd film. But then afterwards he goes on and he makes things like the right stuff and the unbearable lightness of being, Henry and June. Hmm. All stuff based on novels. He did the film about the Marquis de Sade with Michael Caine, can't remember what it's called. Uh, Wasn't it called that? The Marquis de Sade with Michael Caine. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. It might have just been called De Sade or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it was... Um, it Was uh, Was it Michael Caine? Was it, no, was it not? No, it, was, it wasn't. It was um, that um, other amazingly famous actor who was in part of the Caribbean, playing Barbosa. Oh, oh the um, Australian. Yes. Uh, Shine. Shine actor. Yes. Yeah. Well, I can't remember the name. Of that. That's terrible, isn't it? Uh, we've been doing this podcast for about two and a half hours. Of course we can't remember the names. <laughs> Are you again? It might come back to me. Keep going. Anyway, Philip Kaufman. So one of his very early films is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in which he takes the original premise of the original movie and kind of tells the same story, but tells it with a richness that you just don't get in pulpy sci-fi B-movies. And so he turns the... It's like I was saying about Independence Day. They took a big budget and threw it at a B-movie and just made a B-movie writ large. 
with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, he takes a small move, a small budget, and a B movie presence, B movie premise, and turns it into a really dense, character-filled, psychological, disturbing, uh, proper sci-fi movie. Mm. The thing about that film that sets up the whole of the rest of the film. Robert Duval, who'd just been in the first two Godfather movies, and you know, the following year after Invasion of the Body Snatchers was in Apocalypse Now. He's a face that America knew at the time. The very first scene of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is the spores arriving on Earth. And in order to show how dangerous these spores are, what a threat they pose. He has a children's playground with children playing. And when you sort of throw those two ideas together, something dangerous arriving and children being innocent, you can see already that the filmmaker has the presence of mind to kind of look at those fairly esoteric ideas and put them on the screen. And then what he does, he has a priest on a swing in the children's playground who has no dialogue, who doesn't appear anywhere else in the movie, who isn't credited in the credits, and he has Robert Duvall come in and play that part. And you just get one shot of Robert Duvall going backwards and forwards on the, sprit, on the swing as the children are playing in the background and the spores are arriving from outer space. And you know right there and then that that's a movie that's going to say something, that's going to do something, that's going to take you to places that this kind of movie doesn't usually bother to take you. It's amazing. Halfway through the film, Kevin McCarthy, who played the lead part in the first Invasion of the Body Snatchers, comes in and does his dialogue from the last scene of the first Invasion of the Body Snatchers <laughs> that almost sets this film up as a sequel to that film in that it's the same events but taking place somewhere else to show that the threat is planet-wide. This is an astonishing film finish, filmed with amazing sequences and amazing actors and that just takes everything you think you can expect and twists it in some way to make it so that you can never be quite sure of what's going on and it's got Leonard Nimoy in it as the doctor who is just freaky and scary and amazing and in a pole in it yeah the whole film he does is... do a Polonet really well, though. Must <laughs> be said, he has the physique for it. Where Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the seventy-eight I love the way version. You just ignore me. So, no, but I was just gonna. The, where it comes in, <laughs> it's made in the nineteen seventies in the post-Watergate world, where yeah. you've got films like All the President's Men, uh, you know, and the other films that Pecula was making at the time. It's that 1970s sensibility of you can't trust the people you're supposed to be able to trust. And that's what Invasion of the Body Snatchers is all about. The first one was about you can't trust your next door neighbour because they may be a communist. The second one is you can't trust your politicians because they might be doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. And it's got that sensibility about it. But it's brilliant. We're, we're both fans of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, aren't we? Mm. And uh, there have been quite a few films out. The, the four last, or five. Four or five. The last two were Invasion, I think, quite recently. was The Invasion with Nicole Kidman, Nicole Kidman and yeah. Bond. 
Yeah, and before that was the invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was, which was I think, in a, a set on an army, army base. Army yeah. base. And even though they're with quite, Gabby they're, they're, they're not even close to those two that we're, we're talking about. The, the fifty. They're still pretty good. They're still it's pretty such good. A strong because, story. Exactly. The whole idea and the whole. The whole premise of the film is it's an such a, a good. It's an adaptable premise. You can't really go too far wrong. Because, like I've said, it's about not being able to trust the person you think you should be able to trust, whether that's your next door neighbour because yeah. they might be a communist, whether that's the politicians because they're supposed to be looking out for your interests, or whether it's the army because the army are supposed to be protecting you. So the third one, the one with Gabrielle Anwar, is about not being able to trust the army to protect you because that was made at the time when you had things like what they were doing in the Middle East, where you didn't know whether what the army would do. Second World War, was no question, Hitler, you know, mm. Japan, mm. what they're doing is wrong. We must be protected from that. We must make sure the world is put back to rights. Mm. You go into the Gulf and, you know, the conflicts in the Middle East, and all of a sudden it's much more of a grey area. So the third Invasion of the Body Snatchers film reflects those concerns. Mm. The fourth one... With Nicole Kidman, not so much. No, it was just made because it could be made. But then um, Robert Rodriguez did a version of it called The Faculty in oh, the 90s. Oh, I love The Faculty. I forgot I love about that. that yeah. I like that one as well. Which was like <laughs> a, which was a sort of postmodern teen comedy version <laughs> of it. Well, but it's a great film. It is a great film. Tremendous See, that's fun. that's five, not bad versions. But, mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, obviously there are deeper meanings like you were just bringing up. But on, on the surface, uh, you know, the actual motives of the aliens, as it were, throughout most of these films, is, is an, it's indifference. There's a lot of indifference going on. It's, it's almost like, you know, this is something we have to do. This is what we do. Uh, you know, we, we, we populate the Earth with these kind of uh, unemotional Well, bringing it back things. to Doctor Who, it's yeah. a bit like the Cybermen. It's like the Cybermen. But mm. it's like how the Cybermen should be without... You know, with all this kind of fist-clenching excellent stuff going on. It, it is a very scary concept that these pods... You know, the way the pods are being moved in the first film, the way that people are getting taken over, and the way that humans are sussing on this, and they have to be walking around looking what a bit vacant. the aliens are doing is taking out the bit of you that makes you you. Yeah. But, it, you know, essentially your body will die, another one will take its place. Um, but... A, there may be but some, that's the there metaphor. May be, there may be some telepathic, there may be a link, there may be something left of you. Well, that's that the is, metaphor. Whatever, yeah. Is that mm. because you don't thing. have what makes you you anymore, you're somebody else, hence it's a different body. Yeah. But the metaphor is for the fact that they're taking away the thing, yeah. the ability to love, the but ability the to laugh. They, but the way they just stand there and tell you, well, you're going to, you know, this is a much better world. Why on earth do you want the world that you're living in? Ours is much better. Um, Which goes back ask, to the communist we're not thing ask you in the nineteen fifties. You're going to have no choice. <laughs> yeah, that's Which frightening. Goes back to the communist thing in the nineteen yeah. fifties, yeah. and of course goes back to the politicians in the nineteen seventies thinking they know best and going to whatever extreme they need to go in order to impose that. Right, shall we? Uh, oh, just just a very quick thing. Yeah, I, I think on. I'm right. Is it, you say it's Kevin McCarthy was the original. Yeah, lead. He comes back again as that character in Looney Tunes Back in Action. Did he? Oh, yeah. yes, he did. And that's that's it. There's a secret base, isn't there? There's, quite like there's a movie film. Dalek there. There's Robbie the Robot. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That's a from... fun movie. It is a fun movie. <laughs> and does he say, you're next? They, they carry him off shouting, don't they? And he's carrying a pod, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he's black. everyone else's colour and he's, he's in black, black and white. white. 
And he's probably <laughs> shouting, you're next. Yeah. Watching yeah, the yeah. skies. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Right, final, because yeah, we've been going for so long now. This, In fact, we've been going for so long, and this is the third one in the trilogy, and it's almost like an extended episode in the trilogy, which brings me nicely to Lee's last choice, because we sat down here and we said, what are we going to do with this podcast? We're going to make our personal choices. Movies that people might not necessarily have seen. Sci-fi movies that people might not necessarily have seen <laughs> that we can recommend to them. Films that they may not necessarily be aware of. Although, <laughs> although, although they may be aware of them. Things like Guardians of the Galaxy and Tron. Uh, yeah. May have escaped them that they may have not bothered to watch. That we can perhaps... So, Lee, would you like to explain to us what your personal sci-fi choice is? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, all right. Well, it's not sci-fi. I mean, we did mention The Dark Crystal earlier and nobody flinched. And I think that's the same kind of thing, really. It's it's Lord of the Rings, all right? It's Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, specifically. And it's actually the, the, the first, you know, The Fellowship of the Ring. That's that's the film that I really like. Two Towers, amazing as well. Returning him, but something about Fellowship of the Ring, and I just think that you know it's a fantasy world. It's full of uh, orcs and fairies and goblins. No fairies in it, by the way. Elves, um, and all that sort of stuff. And people will just throw that away. Uh, I know that Declan May hates this this kind of stuff. I know that a few other friends uh, that like Doctor Who don't necessarily like this stuff. But I, I don't. I would say. Why? Why don't you? Because it's it's a fantasy world. It's you know okay. Doctor Who is called science fiction, but it has fantastical elements to it, and it's never like we were discussing before the podcast. It's never gone down the route of actually having dragons in the episodes of Doctor Who, but you know we reckon that they they could get away with doing that in some shape or form, and it could be explained quite easily, and it'd be a fun episode to do. But uh, Lord of the Rings is you know essentially, if I give you the give you the plot summary or premise it's I two... don't think on this occasion what, what? you really need but to give I... the premise for the listeners I'll tell you what I'll I think sh- you know what I'll yeah, shorten no. it I'll shorten it it's two little dudes getting rid of a ring in a volcano that's all it is right <laughs> <laughs> two little dudes getting rid of a ring in a volcano isn't that have you just given us the premise for the third film actually <laughs> but um no, I, I love it. I've loved the story since I was young. I've loved The Hobbit. I've loved everything about J.R.R. Tolkien's um, world building. <laughs> I thought for a second he was going to say, I love everything about J.R. J.R.R.R. Tolkien. There's something about the fact that it was the first proper original fantasy story, fantasy book, that millions have been spawned. D&D, Dungeons & Dragons, all of role-playing games, uh, a lot of uh, Skyrim, anything you can think of that's got a fantasy element to it. Came from. You're very lucky. Richard this... Dawkins is not here. He'd say another book, wouldn't he? Which one? The The Bible. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. There's no walks in that, is there? No. Um, There's. Yeah. No, but it is. It's the first real book that collated or brought together lots of different lore and lots of beliefs and and uh, kind of you know stories from around the world, especially kind of Norse mythology and stuff like that brought it all into one book and created this brand new world. You know, the guy was a linguist, he was a, an intellectual, he was a, a, a scholar, and he put together this this novel that has got elements of... He created his own language, he created poetry, he created 
millions of different plot strands and histories that weren't even in the book. He's, he's called the Silmarillion, you know, another book that never actually got released until after he died. He created this huge world from where? Because it had never been done before. Well... Really, apart from all the mythology, and then he, and then he formed well, a prog exactly. rock band in the in the eighties, didn't he? <laughs> okay, no, it is mythology. It's England something. didn't have a myth of the same ilk as Beowulf, say. Exactly. So he said, "Okay, England King should." Arthur. So, but not in not no. in the same way. No, not a saga. Not as such. So he said, "Okay, England should have a saga. I will write it." Yeah. But to me, that's where it falls down because something like Beowulf arrives naturally and develops naturally and the histories and the strands of the myth are all created naturally. Whereas with Lord of the Rings, it's kind of imposed mythology. Mm. Almost. Mm. I don't think so because he's. it is imposed, I suppose, yeah. But you, he has created new myth within the myth. So he's using Norse mythology as a template for certain things. But he's not actually... And he has taken a few stories and adapted them. That's true. But the main thrust of the novel and the main thrust of the, the stories and the characters and things that end up becoming Lord of the Rings, they haven't been done before. You, you know, No, I'm not saying whether words, it's been done like, before Words or like not. elves and words like goblins and words like dwarves have, have always been Hank Christian Anderson type of... And what he did was yeah, the point I'm making is not whether it's new to him or something that he's stolen from somewhere else. What I'm saying is Beowulf, something that is a myth, is a myth because if you go back far enough into history, the people who told those stories believed those things actually yeah. happened. Mm. Lord of the Rings is just a work of fiction. Nobody actually believes anything in Lord of the Rings actually happened. Yeah. He's created a world. He's created a world of fiction out of worlds that we know now are fiction, but that at once upon a time, people actually believed. Yeah. Mm. And it's a good film, except that the direction in certain places isn't quite so good. And some of the CGI is pretty hokey. <clears throat> but it's... I think as a film that was supposed to be, you know, a story that was supposed to be unfilmable, okay, the fact is that he's done them now. I think they are a success. They work brilliantly. They're not the book. Obviously, they're not the books. Um, Thank God for that. Sorry, <laughs> they're not. They're, they're not the books. You're wrong. They're not the books at all. But they have huge amounts of the books in them, and it's Peter Jackson's vision of this story. As simple as that. You you can't really film the books as they are. The two towers is the way it's written. It's impossible to do a film. That's why he had to change the way that it was. Uh, you know the way the plots and the way that the story moved forward and introducing certain people earlier into stories like Arwen and things. He needed None to, of he needs to mess around with that. Important. You've got to change things like that to make it. You have got to change that. But my what point is, important? is, we're Doctor Who fans, and there are fans of Tolkien, and lots of people's arms are up in the air going, "Oh, you can't do that to the story." When it came out, I think it just went very quiet. And the thing that Peter Jackson did, if you don't like the movies or you don't like his stories, or, or the story, the one thing Peter Jackson did do is he um, catalogued from the very word go the entire process of making something like this an epic. Everything. When you look at the extras, mm, mm. there are days worth of extras to watch on those DVDs, and they are incredible. If you're a filmmaker, you go here. Watch that, watch all the extras first and then go to film school because he's just catalogued how to make a film 
from start to finish. Beautiful. Well, he's catalogued how to make an epic film. An epic film. You probably yeah. wouldn't get much out of it if you were making a detective film. I don't know. You might do. There's a lot in there. <laughs> Honestly. You'd have a lot to watch. I... I can't believe in any of the characters. It's a fantasy. You don't have to. You had to be, I, I, so the performances the actors are giving don't convince me that they're real people. I know it's a, it's a flaw film, and I know a lot of people don't like. I do. Yeah. like it, but again, it's one of those things that I, I struggle can only with the go books. on the fact that I keep watching it over and over again. I struggle with the books. Um, find them really hard going. So for me, being a thicko who struggles with certain books, um, the films were perfect. I watched it the first time, and I was kind of, I kind of enjoyed it, but I was slightly nonplussed and didn't quite get what was so special. But when I watched it again, I think on DVD, all of a sudden I got, and funny enough, I got the characters, and I kind of got, I kind of got that fellowship thing. I love the first film; I think it's the best of the three, and I just found it utterly charming. Mm. And I think that's what I got out of it. I think they're all very entertaining, by the way. Yes. Mm. But they are immensely fun. One thing I really don't like about them, though, is Ian McKellen. I think he's one of those actors who you can always tell is acting. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I think he he doesn't do it in The Hobbit very well. I I get... I thought all The Hobbits were a failure, but I think Ian McKellen as Gandalf, he wasn't going to be my first choice as Gandalf, but I thought he pulled it off. This guy playing Aragorn, sorry. Oh, Vito Mortensen? Yeah, Vigo. Vigo, yeah. He's fantastic. He was a last minute. He's great. um, Inclusion as well. He's a very good actor. Quite well known, didn't he? I I can't remember, I'm afraid. Was he not the guy in the road? He was, wasn't he? Yes. He's a great actor. Yeah, yeah. Some of those parts were great. The guys playing the hobbits, not so much. No, it's not, yeah. I mean, Fredo and Sam are the two main characters that have to hold the entire three films. And, you know, if I got quite fed up with looking at um, the big wide eyes um, and, and Sam's hokey kind of Devonshire dialect. It's a bit like the Harry Potter films. I'd like to like the Harry Potter films. I don't think much of the books, but I quite like to like the movies because but it's got those three kids at the centre of it. And it's just, you know, every time they open their mouths, I think, oh, God. I don't. People say Emma Watson's a good actress. Emma Watson. Yeah, she's a good-looking actress. Is she? I don't know. I don't know. I think she was by the third film. She worked well in that part because Mm. that's what the part needed. Yeah. Oh no, it's that kind of casting's great. Yeah, up her own kind of. But it uh, the casting was all right by the time they got to the third or fourth film. Apart from Daniel Radcliffe, who couldn't act for any of the films at all. Um, no. I haven't seen Woman in Black, but apparently he's quite good in that. He's very good. No, yeah. not really. No? no? No, he gives, in Woman in Black, he's obviously been asked to give a very flat performance. Is he going to be the British Keanu Reeves, <coughs> is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he gives, but he gives a very flat performance. I don't think he's, I don't think he moves a muscle on his face throughout the entire film. Because the, less is more. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously they were hoping to get that less is more thing going. It's a good film, in spite of him being in it. To be okay. honest, yeah. there's a. Uh, it's one of those films where about halfway through it'll suddenly click with you. Okay. There was okay. one I wasn't expecting to be, because you spend the entire film thinking, "Oh God, it's Daniel Radcliffe! Oh God, it's Daniel Radcliffe! <laughs> oh God!" 
God, it's David Radcliffe. And then about halfway through, this bit that just sends a shiver down your spine happens. And yeah, it's a good story. And it's a well-made film. But, oh God, it's Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> it's very harmless. Yeah. He's another one of those, isn't he? He's a lovely guy. He's a really lovely guy. He is. He's the but he's not an actor. But you, yeah, I don't know what it is. Is it just that he can't act, or that he was picked at an early age for such a huge project, huge, huge film, mm. that maybe he's got a belief that he is a very good actor? And you know, the fact Which I think it's down to him. How can you, tell, it's how down can you to... tell when you're thirteen whether you're going to be any good in the future? I don't think it's it's not arrogance on his part. He didn't choose himself no, to be Harry Potter. Somebody else he's chose. Great him. reviews for his latest film. I'm trying to think what and it he's is. got. Oh, the horns. Yes, he's supposed to be fantastic in that. Okay. Didn't Starburst give it a good review? What is it? Horns. Oh, I think so, yeah. I think it's another one of those sort of post-Guillermo del Toro type things. Right. One of those sort of... Is it not one of those sort of dark, slightly fantastical stories where... A bit like Guillermo del Toro meets Charlie Kaufman. Mm. Mm. What, Horns. Yeah. Meets Twilight, probably. Uh, no, I don't think so. No, so no not at no all. Ele- no element of that. It's like being John Malkovich crossed with a little bit of... I'm trying to think of... What's the famous Guillermo del Toro one? The well, Pan's Labyrinth. Labyrinth. Pan's yeah. Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth meets being John Malkovich, I guess. Flipping it, that's a high record. <laughs> OK, I'll have to, I'll have to watch I it. Think, I don't know, I'm not sure. Am I right? I think... Sort of in that... Limey. Mm, maybe, I don't know. It's not got fantasy elements like in Pan's Labyrinth, right? But the gist of Pan's Labyrinth, if I remember rightly, is yes. that, is this real or is this not real? Yeah. And so Horns is got an element of, is this real, is this not real? Meeting the sensibilities of something like being John Malkovich, okay. where it doesn't matter whether it's real or not, because you have to go with the story that's being told to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sounds like it needs to be watched then. Yeah. But, oh God, it's Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> but the same can be said of The Woman in Black, and it's still a good film, and I still recommend seeing it. Mm. It's just, it's a good film, but you can't fall in love with it, because... <laughs> oh God, it's Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> yeah, quite. Right, how many hours have we done? Oh, a couple. I love the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah. I haven't seen any of the Hobbits yet. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. I mean, the books are the hardest graft ever. I struggle with the Hobbit. There's a, there's a million how... names in there. There's a million families, a million strings to to kind of work out. And yeah. if you can be bothered with getting through the first paragraph where it tells you an entire you know legacy well, of people, then it's the same with Game of Thrones. So if you start watching Game of Thrones, you start reading the books, or you read the books and watch the. I steered clear of Game of Thrones because I thought it might be as heavy as Lord of the Rings, but it's not. It's not as heavy. And at the end of the day, it's about a great story. If you want to get down to it, you've just got to say, if you picked up a novel, I don't know, love story, or if you picked up The Godfather, or if you picked up Hard Times, or whatever, there are people in those books, lots of people in those books, and whether their name be Smith, or Carruthers, or Beelzebub, you get to know the character and his name is whatever his name is. Or her name is whatever her name is. Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, they're just names. They're just made-up names that you've not heard before. 
but still you have to associate the name with the character yeah. and you follow the story of the people who are in the book. Yeah. Do you need to know the history of these characters and the races? No, you don't. No, you don't need to, no. But if no. you stripped all that, it would be about three pages long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's the same with Star Wars. Like you say, know, at the end of the day... It's ring into a volcano. At the end of the day, everyone wants to be Han Solo. And it doesn't matter what's happened before. They just want to be Han Solo because he's cool on screen and he, yeah. and he does what he does. Except yeah. I want to be Darth Vader. Yeah. <laughs> Think you want to be legless? Legless. No, he's the boss. <laughs> he's a terrible actor as well, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Oh, what, Orlando Bloom? Yeah. Oh, it just about works in Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, don't get me started on Pirates, please. Really? You don't like them? I've, I've, it's an ongoing the thing. The first one's great. I fall asleep in every Pirates of the Caribbean film. Well, the first one's great. The others are rubbish. second one was enjoyable. third one was too long. fourth one, I can't remember. The fourth one. <laughs> I haven't seen the fourth one. I just couldn't go I there. I love Pirates. The third one just doesn't make any sense, is the trouble. It's very long and the plot doesn't really seem to add up. Or you can't follow all the strands it of it. It's too, too much going too on. Too much going on. It gets too big. There's too many galleons. Too many the, pirates. The first one's a nice. In. The first one's a nice, simple story. And if they did, and that's, right. yeah, simple and funny and filled with rich characterisation. And if you've had a success with a film that tells a simple story with lots of rich characterisation that's funny enough to keep you laughing, then why do you change that formula? I'll tell you a better film about pirates is Pirates in an Adventure of the Scientists. That's a brilliant film. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Ardman Animation. Very good film. Oh, Ardman. Hugh Grant. Mm. I, see, but I struggle with animation. Oh, really? Any kind of animation. Yellowbeard. That's the one to watch. <laughs> <laughs> see, if I can't see an actor's face, I can't believe in what an actor's saying. And you know, I'm what not going to say... What man? I didn't think very much of that movie, to be honest with you. Didn't you? No, it's David Lynch. I find David Lynch's films too affected. We're going to get to David Lynch in a second, oh, funny enough. <laughs> We've got one email and then we'll go. It's from Matt Barber. He says, Dear Blue Box Podcast, so my innuendo free email. He has deliberately sent us an email that includes no innuendos whatsoever because for the last few weeks, everybody has been filling their emails with innuendos, right? <laughs> so he says, he says, his first line is, it feels strange to defend Christopher Nolan. Feels strange? Is that not an innuendo just to get us started? To defend Christopher Nolan as he seems to be lauded by both critics and audiences. And he says lauded <laughs> by both critics and audiences. Is that not a bit of a threesome thing going on there? Why a man is Christopher Nolan and he's lauded. <laughs> he says he seems to be lauded by both critics and audiences, but I'm struggling. <laughs> to understand... <laughs> you leaving that in? Jesus. <laughs> I'm struggling to understand JR's reluctance to join the bandwagon. For me, Nolan is the natural inheritor of Stanley Kubrick. When he says he's the natural inheritor of Stanley Kubrick, <laughs> what's, go what's going on there, eh? You can tell it's quarter to midnight, can't you? Like Kubrick, he favours mise-en-scene. Oh, la la. 
What was that? Mise-en-scene. And spectacle over character. I'm sorry, what's mise-en-scene? Uh, milieu. Oh, okay. Famously viewing actors as parts of the scenery to be controlled. But like Kubrick, Nolan manages to develop character through the viewer's emotional reaction to what they see rather than through the performances of the actors. Importantly, Nolan, like Kubrick, is obsessed with genre and gleefully jumps between them, imposing their own distinctive directorial style on them. Like Kubrick, he's an authentic director, someone who understands how to get from the script to the screen without compromise and without sacrificing their crystal clear vision of how their film should look. And I can't disagree with him, but Christopher Nolan's vision is entirely different from Stanley Kubrick's and it's Stanley Kubrick's vision that I love. So while Christopher Nolan might be attempting to make his version of something approaching Stanley Kubrick's vision, it's not Stanley Kubrick's vision. So he can go and take a long run and a high jump. Anyway, JR likes genre as well, says Matt. It seems to shape his taste in Doctor Who, for instance. He likes the cosy, catastrophic Dalek invasion of Earth or the genre-obsessed Hinchcliffe years and dislikes it when the series settles on a single genre that he disagrees with. Sayward's obsession with hard-action adventure, for instance. I agree with J.R. about this and I share his love of Kubrick, so I can't see why Nolan has passed him by. Love, Matt. Well, i got to tell you, Matt. It's because he makes films like Memento and Batman Begins, whereas Kubrick made films like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Lolita. And that was bad shot. P.S. One of the horror movie greats. Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. David Lynch, another uncompromising director with just a little touch of genius. Just a little touch of genius. <laughs> Thanks for your innuendo free... Po- I love Memento. But I wouldn't watch it a second time. It's it's, it's almost novelty in some respects, isn't it? What do people say about Memento? Well, it's backwards. Yeah, yeah. If you if you put all of if you put the story in the right order, Mm. it doesn't tell a very interesting story. Wasn't that a DVD extra on the American disc or something? Wasn't it? Yeah, Mm. everyone was buying an import just so they could watch it in the right order. But actually, it's very—it can't tell an interesting how it's been cut out and made in the first place. It can't tell an interesting story because if it did, it would be too confusing for the backwards affectation. Mm. But it's all affectation. I don't like affectation, and this is what Kubrick did. His films look like affectation, but they're not affectation. What Kubrick did was he would get the actors in a scene in a room and he would spend the entire day going through that scene until those actors could play it with very similitude but in a way where the performances were full of surprise and not what you'd expect to see so you come away from his films believing in the actors and believing in the characters but having seen characterization and performance the likes of which you'd never get in another movie and people like christopher nolan don't do it like that don't get that level of reality there's a preconception as well isn't there with what christopher nolan does i imagine he it's a less organic process i imagine is that what you mean yeah kubrick's process was very organic people say oh kubrick would take 75 takes of somebody walking through a door and yeah maybe he would 
because he wanted to get them to come through that door in a way like Tom Baker as the Doctor, where we'd never seen a an actor come through a door like that, but where we could believe that that was something natural that the actor would do. And he would spend all his time with the cameras turned on, working with the actors, getting them to produce performances that were completely unique, utterly compelling, and yet filled with a reality that you can only see inside that movie because the entire movie has that reality for its characters and once that movie's over you never get that back again in any other movie i can't think of any kubrick film where you can fault the acting not as he gets it he gets it out of them the one performance i don't like is nicole kidman in eyes wide shut i think she's rubbish yeah but that's like squeezing blood out of stone isn't it Mm. to be honest Anyway, we've talked for a very long time and I'm absolutely desperate for the toilet so I'm going to knock it on the head. <laughs> Talking about squeezing blood out of a stone. Uh, I don't think there'd be much squeezing going on. <laughs> I was going to say, did, did Matt get um, a letter published in Starburst under the name of Matthew Barber? Probably. He wrote for Starburst way back when uh, when it was just on the website. Oh, right, okay. But not very much. No, no. Sorry, I just uh, briefly looking at the latest issue, I noticed that somebody was replying to him in the letters page. I can't remember. Oh, probably. Mm. Uh, right, I shall have to go and have another look. Right, next week, all being well, and things have been a bit higgledy-piggledy of late, all being well, next week we shall discover which of the eras of Doctor Who was our listeners' favourite. Mm. So until then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.